With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Previously on Lost. Do you really think all this is an accident? You think we crashed on this place by coincidence? Especially this place? We were brought here for a purpose, for a reason, all of us. Each one of us was brought here for a reason. Brought here. And who brought us here, John? Horse? You gotta find me, John. You gotta find me. And when you do, you'll find him. Who? Jacob. Now that we did the right thing, Jack, I think he wants us to come back. Two players, two sides. One is light, one is dark. I see you in another light, brother. We have to go back! Hello and welcome to The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast for Season 4, Episode 5, The Constant. And I have a question, guys. What's your constant from eight years ago? That would be the year of our Lord, 2012. My name is Dave Gonzalez, and it's my Iron Man helmet, because Avengers was all the rage in 2012. I don't know if you remember. My name is uh, Joanna Robinson. And I'm going to go with uh, President Vladimir Putin, who uh, served as the president of Russia since 2012. Uh, and he goes way back. Be- like, basically, Putin is eternal, right? Right. So, like, we can just go back to whenever we need to and we'll find some Putin. So I'm I'm all set. All right. And I'm Neil Miller. And my constant from eight years ago is Tom Hardy's Bane voice because never fails to be great. The fire rises is how it sounds without a mask on. Uh, Yes, we're here to talk about Lost, the ABC series Lost. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you're joining us because this is a damn good episode of television, not just a fantastic episode of Lost. But if this is your first time joining us, welcome. This podcast is an ideal companion if you're rewatching the ABC series Lost with us or visiting the island for the very first time. Each episode comes in sections for your listen- listening pleasure. First, there's a calm section that only discusses the preceding episodes and avoids all spoilers, and a second section that's called The Storm. It's a storm of spoilers discussing this week's episode in the context of the entire series and over a decade of lost fandom. This week, we also have a third section. It's an interview with Griffin Newman. Joanna's going to have a long chat with him. That is also going to be spoiler-free this week. You're very welcome. If you looked out your podcasting device, you will see time codes so you could skip around as you want, and that way you don't get spoiled if you don't want to, and if you're only up to season four, episode five, 
the constant. If you would like to support the podcast besides just listening to this very lengthy episode about this very good television show, you can go to patreon.com slash stormspoilers. There you could sign up to support us at a monthly subscription level that will also give you access to bonus material. That is extra podcasts from the three of us talking about things that aren't lost. Lots of things happen, but usually pop culture things that aren't lost. We do book clubs. We do live watches. Uh, we do watch alongs. It's a real good time over at patreon.com slash storm of spoilers. We'll also detail a bunch of things, including Joanna Robinson's two bonus podcasts she's doing for us. <laughs> uh, one includes Dave Chen occasionally uh, talking to Joanna Robinson. Yeah, about... that's real occasional. I wouldn't call it a whole podcast. It's a sometimes a special feature. It is uh, something that you definitely will get access to the second you sign up for our $10 level. Uh, so Because it's our back catalog. But also, there are new special podcasts coming up where Joanna... Shows her friends some 80s fantasy movies they haven't seen. It feels like the first time. What are we looking forward to, Joanna? Um, I think I mentioned this the last week, but we are watching Willow, Legend, and Beastmaster on Feels Like the First Time with Kristen Russo this month, which is just like uh, a beautiful trio of movies, if I if I must say so myself. Uh, so yeah, so come hang out on the Patreon. We hang out all the time. We watch movies. We watch TV shows. Neil and I were just like discussing maybe doing something for you know, Thanksgiving orphans this year. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, you know, folks, and by that I mean folks who, who cannot go home because of COVID or other reasons for Thanksgiving. Um, I'm also here to talk to you about other ways you can get in contact with us. One of them is you could leave a review for us. This review comes from Che Argentino. So that's fun. Uh, five stars. The title of the review is Walt! Um, And they write, here's the deal. I could go on and on about how great these hosts are, but let me just put it on the... Oh, I didn't read this in advance. Let me just put it on the record that Joanna's got to be the best podcast host on these here interwebs. Period. (laughs) The other two guys are nice, too. Lost was the first show my wife and I watched together after we got married, and we are now rewatching the show with our 13-year-old daughter. I love looking over at my daughter right when something wild is about to happen on the show to see her reaction as it happens. Thank you all for producing such an enjoyable podcast to accompany this experience. So, uh, you're welcome. Thank you for writing in. Uh, you can always leave us a review. We love to have them. We also have a couple emails this week. Excuse my voice. We have a couple emails. Um, one is saved for the storm section, but this one from Rachel is safe for the calm. So here we go. It's a it's a long one, and it sort of contains our book club. Our 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 book club corner is contained in this email from Rachel. Okay, here we go. All right, Rachel writes. Listen, Desmond Hume has come unstuck in time. This is probably my favorite season of Lost and The Constant is hands down my favorite episode. I have so many thoughts, but what might be the most helpful to explore is the connections between Desmond's story and Kurt Vonnegut. The way Desmond experiences time travel is very much like the main character from Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, Billy Pilgrim. Billy swings randomly through time, but it's only his consciousness moving to different points in his life, just like Desmond. And although Billy is aware of future events, he does nothing to stop or alter even the worst of them. This is because of the very fatalistic approach Vonnegut takes to moving through time. And when the show echoes, what happened happened. Um... This may also be because the idea of time travel is merely a delusion of Billy's mind manufactured to save him from his trauma. 
Billy is told about the unwavering nature of time by fourth dimensional aliens who know that they destroy the universe but do nothing to prevent it. This reminds me of Um, things happen. I can't tell if that's a spoiler. Um, Daniel Faraday has several ties to Billy Pilgrim. Uh, Daniel seeing the fake oceanic crash and crying despite not knowing why is similar to Billy Pilgrim, who cries when he sees a barbershop quartet singing, even though he doesn't know why. Uh, it turns out that the same quartet of men are in a plane crash, exclamation mark, with him in the future, and their open mouth singing reminded him of their open mouth screaming. Or maybe the quartet of men remind him of his trauma from the firebombing of Dresden. An even more fatalistic approach to times explored in Vonnegut's Time Quake. The time quake that happens stress the entire population of Earth's minds back 10 years. Because this period of time has already happened, no one can change anything. This makes everyone essentially passengers in their own bodies, forced to watch their previous actions. This feels like determinism drawn out to its furthest conclusion. Even If even small changes can have repercussions on the time stream, then maybe you have no control at all. In fact, everyone in Time Quake gets so used to being out of control that when free will kicks back in, there are countless car crashes and accidents because no one is used to piloting their own bodies. Now our lost... You have to bleep that. Okay. <clears throat> and now a few random thoughts. My Xbox hand- handle is Dharma Box Wine, and hearing Joanna say it made my day. <laughs> I did a puzzle with the other day with a horse in it, and every time I picked up a piece that might have been part of the horse, I said a horse out loud and drove my <laughs> husband crazy. <laughs> Thanks for reading my ramblings, Rachel. So that's Rachel on Curvonaget with a few bleeps because of some future content. Um, <clears throat> Dave Gonzalez, I think you are a Billy Pilgrim fan. What are your thoughts on Slaughterhouse-Five and how it connects to this episode? Yeah, I really like it. I like uh, Vonnegut's... Uh, or I, I really think Rachel's email uh, laid out uh, how you can't tell the difference between time travel and trauma uh, when it is uh, set amongst the firebombing of uh, Dresden. But yes, I very much am a Billy Pilgrim fan. I, in the joke band that I had in high school... He had a song called Unstuck in Time, and uh, several of the verses were just quotes from the book. So now, every once in a while, if I need to, I could uh, quote Slaughterhouse-Five because I can sing sing it. <clears throat> so that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, how about you? Do you have any Vonnegut thoughts? No, not really. <laughs> nothing Nothing quite like what Dave just said. I All right, just well... need to let that sit there for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you can um uh, as you as you get the smell of mustard gas and roses out of your nose, you can always email us host at stormpodcast.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at stormpodcast where we make announcements and drop our history polls and do all kinds of stuff. Uh, you can write us a review. Uh, you can visit our website, stormpodcast.com. And uh, if you are in our Patreon Slack, you can join us this Saturday. We will be watching the next episode, The Other Woman. I will be there as your host, um, you know, guiding you through it. And we're going to have a good time. So that's it for me, Neil Miller. What mm-hmm. happened on Lost this week? Oh, I am very excited to tell you all about The Constant, which is an episode directed by Jack Bender. Uh, it was written by Damon Lindelof, Carlton Cuse. You're familiar with their names. Uh, it aired on February 28, 2008, and it takes place mostly on Day 94 on the island. We skip the previously on for this episode, jump right into the action. 
back with the helicopter, which we haven't seen for a couple episodes, uh, where they're experiencing some turbulence that causes, and I, I can't stress this enough, it causes Desmond's consciousness to jump back and forth through time between 1996 and 2004. It's a lot of fun. At the beach camp, uh, it's been more than a day since the helicopter took off, and the boat still hasn't seen him. And as science man Dan explains to Jack and Juliet, that's mostly fine, because things are getting timey-wimey on this island of mystery. In the 2004 flashes, a disoriented Desmond meets the very helpful George Minkowski. He gets a data download from Dan and has to get to the recently busted-up radio room so that he can call Penny. Luckily, Saeed is there, and he loves fixing radios. In the 1996 flashes, an equally confused, now crew-cut Desmond takes a road trip from his military base in Scotland to Oxford, where he uh, gets a data download from long-haired Dan, then has to go to London and convince Penny to give him her phone number for the future. Luckily, Penny loves keeping the same phone number for eight years almost as much as she loves Christmas. So it all works out, and literally everyone cries. Uh, it all ends with Dan sitting quietly on the beach, reading his journal, discovering a page where his past self noted that Desmond is his constant. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, <laughs> fun fact about this episode, there is a dog in the scene where Desmond goes to Oxford University um, that is the same dog that is used for the painting in Jacob's cabin. This dog. Jacob dog! Yeah, so we're tracking this dog. This dog's name is Lulu, uh, who was a pet of this episode's director, Jack Bender. At the time, she now belongs to costume designer Roland Sanchez. What? How did that happen? <laughs> I guess Jack Bender gave... Uh, do, you, do people normally gift dogs? Uh, this, no? this is a very, very foreign concept to me. Interesting. Uh, but hey, Jack Bender... You know, who knows in the mind of Jack a genius. Bender bought a dog to paint it and then was like, well, now I'm done with the painting. Now I'm done with the painting and the dog and lost. So here, here you go. Uh, all right. This week's calm question. Uh, back in 1996, uh, long haired Daniel's rodent lab assistant's name is Eloise. And, you know, RIP Eloise. Uh, my question for you is what would you name a rat that you would then zap through time? If you were, uh, if you were old Dan, let's uh, start with Joanna. What are you naming your rat? Oh, Vladimir Putin. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Vlad the rat. <laughs> Dave, what's what's a good rat name? I mean, I feel like Billy Pilgrim and Einstein for my pop culture touchstones, but it's a fe- it's a female rat, so I'm gonna go with uh, Jasmine because uh, I like Aladdin. Oh, okay. Um, I guess. It could. It doesn't have to be a female rat. It could, it's your rat. It's not Dan's rat. Um, oh. I think I would go with Stuart. That's some mouse slash rat name. Stuart. <laughs> Stuart. Um. What if you? But like, you know that you are likely. You are probably. Probably this rat is not going to survive your experiment. Would you still name it Jasmine? Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. Because I got to. I got to show her a whole new world. Of death. <laughs> place she never knew. No. Wow. 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 Okay. Okay, wow. So is Stuart uh, like a mad TV poll? No, more like Stuart Little. Oh, like Stuart, Stuart Little. Little the, but also the, Letterkenny. Yeah. 
But also Letter also Kenny. Letter Kenny. Yeah, it's a good oh. Letter Kenny. Stuart. Stuart. Oh, just hit around the full Stuart. <laughs> uh, all right, guys. Uh, the Constant. A lot to unpack in this episode. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what order we want to unpack it well, in. Uh, Dave, can I start by asking you a question? Yes. Um, so in, in Rachel's email, she said, you know, this idea of like time travel and loss is about um, whatever happened and already happened. Fuck. Um, and Mrs. Hawking, when she was talking to Desmond and I believe flashes before your eyes, you know, said something similar. But in this episode, given what's in Dan's notebook, isn't that an indication that Desmond impacted some kind of change in the past? Mm, that is possible unless that was always in old Dan's notebook. Um, I feel like, so two things jump to mind. One is during the live watch, someone brought up why it would benefit Dan to meet a future man and then make him his constant. Because it's not like Penny, who's like star-crossed lovers, like Desmond's whole thing is to get back to Penny. I doubt that Dan's whole thing is to get in contact with Desmond or he would have been more excited, you know, when uh, Desmond showed up. But what it is, is two points in time that Dan is somebody who studied time and who presumably is, you know, brought along to do some sort of experiment with that on the island, uh, knows that Desmond says he found him on an island. So if Dan is ever told in his life that he has an opportunity to get to an island and he knows that uh, the future cannot be changed uh, because of his studies, then he knows it's safe to add a constant as Desmond Hume on the island. Uh, Does that mean if he writes it down eight years later, he automatically remembers when he's on the island to look for a Desmond? I would think so. But then again, I don't know what happened to Dan in between here and there. So that sort of makes sense to me. The other part of my answer is actually going to be our official podcast check-in because David Lindelof and Carlton Cuse, showrunners, had an official Lost podcast and they decided to step in and try to cut off people asking them emails about this, I'm sure, by just straight up explaining what they were doing. Uh, Neil will be reading the part of David Lindelof. I'll be reading the part of Carlton Cuse. This one's a little long, but it should answer all those questions. Here we go. <clears throat> Just a quick sort of side note in terms of the way that we deal with time travel on the show. We are very paradox averse. That is to say, when our characters are time traveling, uh, nothing that they do can change the present or the future that you have seen, which is different than, you know, the conventional back to the future time travel storytelling. Or heroes. Or heroes, yeah. For us, what we don't want is for the audience not to be invested in the flash forwards. When you see, that would be pretty meaningless if they were a changeable reality. Well, as far as time travel goes. As far as time travel goes, yes. As far as time travel goes, definitely not changeable. Right, or that you have a different Jack popping up in an alternate reality, which is different than the one we've established. Right, that stuff is really cool. I mean, the heroes, case in point for all those who... Uh, watch both shows we certainly do and are big fans of heroes but if hero moves back to the past and says there's a catastrophe that's going to happen unless you guys save the cheerleader if they do save the cheerleader then theoretically future hero never existed to come back and warn them but you know that's paradox 
The hard thing about this episode was actually structuring the time travel elements or consciousness traveling elements to avoid paradox. But that, again, is something that I think a lot of people have speculated about. Are there parallel futures? Are there some sort of multiple universe and worlds that exist in the future, depending on how events in the past play out? And that is not our intention. Yeah. And Ms. Hawking basically explained those rules in the first episode, Flashes Before Your Eyes, where she basically said that the universe has a way of course correcting. So even if you did something in the past that you didn't do before, somehow the sort of fabric of time like swoops in around you and fixes everything so things didn't go off the rails, or things don't go off the rails. I assume probably after the constant, we're going to get a lot of questions like, well, did Penny know when she went to go see Desmond at the stadium in 2001 that he had told her to wait by the phone back in 1994? And all of these questions, and to that we say refer to the Ms. Hawking scene in Flashes Before, Flashes Before Your Eyes. She gives a fairly good explanation on how everything works. Yeah, and you know the notion... And if not, Carlton's phone number is... No, no. 818. Hey, hey stop, stop, stop. Wait, what? Yes, exactly. More on Destiny later in the series. Exactly. It is our destiny to talk more about Destiny. Yes, because that's a factor. All right. And C. <laughs> so, Joanna, did David Lindelof successfully talk himself out of that uh, apparent new thing that he did at the end of this episode? I mean, I don't care. <laughs> 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 I don't care that much about the rules of time. Like, Endgame broke me of that. There was a point in the Endgame discourse, the Avengers Endgame discourse, where I was so tired of the, like, like... It felt very apparent to me that the writers were just doing whatever made sense for them for the story. And I became very tired of even the brightest, loveliest of the fandom debating the rules of time travel in Avengers Endgame that I decided ever after that I was not going to get too hung up on the rules of time travel in a story. If the story if the story works emotionally, then the rules work. So for me. So that's where I yes. am. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's ultimately the point, is that when a story is working, a time travel story is working this well, uh, especially like in The Constant, it's making use of its storytelling primarily to get you emotionally invested in the characters. This isn't a time travel story about how long it takes Saeed to fix the radio or right. you know some sort of uh, tick, literal ticking clock. Uh, this is back to Desmond, uh, back back to Penny, and putting them in a situation where, uh, for us as the audience, we get thrown onto the freighter with a whole bunch of new people. Desmond doesn't recognize Saeed, and um, there's a new type of flash that's happening uh, on this show that is completely disorienting. So it throws the the viewer off. Uh, just like it throws Desmond off and we have to anchor on to literally anything that we can. So it's sort of like we're Desmond on the freighter. And as we get new pieces of information, it starts to make more and more sense until finally, right before commercial break, uh, Minkowski says that Penny's been calling the boat and we finally get to see a way, you know, maybe to the end of this episode without Desmond dying. It's just really brilliantly written and edited to make you not feel any of that. Like the constant cooks in terms of watching it and uh, runtime 
I'm so happy I don't have to watch this with commercials anymore mm-hmm. uh, because I can't even recall what it must have been like to, you know, spend each time off, you know, coming up with a big brain citadel of crazy town theories uh, that would instantly be proven wrong <laughs> two minutes into the next act. Well, yeah. The constant cooks is there's a, there's a bomb on this bus, right? There's a ticking bomb in Dozen's head that is going to go oh, off true. if we don't find a solution. I mean, it cooks for a number of reasons, but that's a reason why, right? There's a clock on it. Um, we don't know exactly what that clock is because the, the rate at which Minkowski expires and the rate at which Eloise the rat expires is our variable. Um, but it seems like, you know, if Desmond's already in the nosebleed stage, it's bad news. So, um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. Well, the other, the last thing I want to say though, about Dan's notebook, um, is, is something I only noticed this time watching through when Dan is explaining to Desmond what a constant is. He says, you have to pick something that means a great deal to you <laughs> that exists yeah. both here and in the future. And I was like, what does it mean that Dan picks Desmond Hume <laughs> as his constant? <laughs> like, Desmond's like, I know, Penny. And Dan's like, I know, Desmond. So Dan's you know. like, the first guy I ever met who traveled through time. That's the most <laughs> yeah, important thing to me. Scottish, that makes, that makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah yeah just like the only person i know who uh, has successfully time traveled is my constant mm-hmm. you're saying my iron man mask isn't gonna work because i don't like love it that much not as much as i love vladimir putin so you know drats <laughs> drats and toad yeah uh so we also learned through minkowski that there was another dude on the boat and these dudes got super impatient about wanting to see the island and got too close, which sort of unstuck uh, their consciousnesses in time. Um, I guess, so we know... R.I.P. Brandon. I mean, say his yeah, name. Our, more, <laughs> more man. I mean, maybe they'd get stuck in like... Because it's just like, it's described as Minkowski can't come back. So maybe you just get to relive part of your life until your eventual death with like a weird dual conscious. Not important. What I I do want to talk about is we've established some more rules about the border of the island. Uh, Season two, Desmond sails away, gone. He's done with all of us. The island keeps turning him back around, pushing him back towards the island. Uh, Also at the end of season two, Walt and Michael get away and they're told to stay in a very specific bearing, which it seems like is the same or a similar bearing or the way off uh, when Dan tells uh, Lapidus to stay in the bearing in the helicopter, they get jostled by a storm just enough to sort of knock Desmond loose because apparently he'd been exposed to electromagnetism. But And then if the other two guys try to approach from the boat, it's not they keep getting turned around. They automatically get unstuck in time. So there's like a one-way valve out of the island, and it's on this very specific heading. But if you try to go out to into the island... It is going to kill you, apparently, uh, and uh, by just uh, completely dis- decoupling your consciousness from your physical body, which I just wanted to say that all at once because it's a really cool fantasy trope for Lost to just kind of like stick in there because for an episode that's about a love story. And it's uh, only, that's... I guess it's only when you're going to the island, right? Not when you're going away. Otherwise, wouldn't that have happened to all the people on the raft in season two? Presumably. Well, mm-hmm. also, if they had got, kept going out, they might have been turned around. 
Right. Because okay. it seems like if you're, if you're outgoing and trying to go back, the <clears> island <throat> kind of wants you back in the island. It'll turn you back around. But it also does not want intruders. So that's where like the time scrambling happens is somewhere on like the outer border. But uh, yeah, cool new island rules that that we have to track here. And I wanted to make sure we we kept on it. Mm-hmm. Oh, the original. But, I looked it up. The original compass compass bearing that Ben gives Michael is three hundred twenty five degrees. In this episode, it's the Dan's heading is three oh five, and in this episode they get to like 310 and that's when desmond his mind breaks oh so yeah maybe there's a little gap well also there was a huge electrical magnetic glow since the last time uh the michael left the islands maybe that bumps the heading off really really we don't know but it is interesting that the island has a some sort of defense mechanism against being found that seems like not something it's not like ben has a station that knows how to unscramble people this is this is some island magic of mystery oh hey look at this there it is our jungle of mystery moment there's a time (laughs) gate around the island question mark boom corner down while we're here in the corners neil what's the name of uh the giacchino (laughs) corner (laughs) uh giacchino corner very easy this week i feel unstuck in time in this podcast am i incorrect <laughs> I mean, I feel like we had a conversation about interspersing corners throughout the calm, but okay. like here we are. Okay. But that was like eight years ago, so it's hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. <laughs> all I know is my phone number. Um. All right, I'll drop a little Giacchino corner on you because uh, this one's easy and quick. There, the this the piece of score there toward the end of this episode, uh, you'll recognize it as the one that made you cry. Uh, is called. The Constant, which is very fitting, but not particularly original. Uh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna <laughs> say right there. What's not- your favorite? What's your favorite line read from the Desmond Penny phone call? I mean, I think it's the it's the hard cut stuff at the end there, where they're like, he's like, she's what? What does he say? I love you. I love you. I promise. Mm-hmm. I'll find you. I'll find you. That's mine. Yeah. Yeah, that's a promise to that's a promise to me, the viewer. That's not a promise to, to Desmond. <laughs> and then and then they sync <laughs> up yeah. at the end with I love you. Oh man. That's just it's it really is just a really well th- this is the kind of episode where everyone had to be on their game. It's it's a well edited episode, it's a well written episode. All the performances are extremely strong. Um just just a just a top notch piece of television. I wonder if Bender uh, did some light storyboarding for this one, or if he's just like, I, get, I see it in my head. He leans down to pick up some quarters, and then, boom, that other shot I got on the freighter. Because it really is the cut back and forth through time traveling isn't all match cuts, and a lot of it, it has just as much to do with sound as with action. Uh, they're really interesting, interesting ways of cutting back and forth, especially What's- for a show... Oh, go ahead. It seems to be in the script. It seems to me that Cuse and Lindelof wrote it into the script. Nice. So you don't think there's any particular visual match? Well, it's like 
in the script, at least in the transcript that's up on Lostpedia, it's like Desmond bends down to pick up the coins and reappears back on the freighter. And then two thousand cut to 2004, Desmond almost falls over. Having written mm. a screenplay that cuts back and forth in time, which I have, uh, you, ha- you want to like plan those things out very intentionally because like then you also want the dialogue to like sort of make sense and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. like that. So Yeah, because then you get to the end. I think visually my favorite one is the one where he's falling in the hallway. Yeah. But I think the best one is the last one where he's he he wakes up saying trust me like finishing the sentence that he mm-hmm. was uh, speaking to Penny um in 96. It's just yeah. that one that one crushes it. For me I think my favorite line reading from that uh phone exchange is Penny you answered you answered Penny. It's the beginning. I just love it. So I don't think it's something someone would normally say, but nothing is like normal about that phone call. It's like very heightened, very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Desmond that, does, yeah. he does a great job of playing it cool right after with Saeed. It's like, Saeed, it was, it was enough. enough. <laughs> <laughs> it was enough. <laughs> so like, shout out to Saeed in this episode who's like, thrust into the caretaker role of of desmond like saeed and desmond aren't even like necessarily that close but saeed is immediately like you know it's immediately like an us versus them scenario right where they're surrounded by this freighter crew that they don't know and don't trust uh and you know so it's desmond and saeed against the world and desmond has lost his marbles so saeed's like okay i need my one ally back in fighting shape oh my goodness um <laughs> you know so you need saeed there to like connect the call but he's also just like very protective of Desmond uh, the whole time, which you love to see. And I also like, um, I talked to Griffin a little bit about this, but I also like the way that Jack is weaponized in this episode as like a demander of answers. And, um, you know, so Jack's like need to know what's going on is really helpful to us as an audience member, because then he can, you know, wring some exposition out of Daniel Faraday, which is helpful to us. So Yeah, tell us, Daniel, what's going on? He yells. The doctor is very confused, but in exchange, we get Side effects, uh, which, yeah, super interesting. Um, the new freighter people that we meet don't seem as nice as our first freighter people <laughs> that we met. I mean, they seem like the muscle. <laughs> they sent the brains to the island and left the muscle back on the freighter for some reason. That's fine. Um, <laughs> Schemey from Vegas. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, speaking of corners, corners, like if you listen to this podcast the first time, which you might. Because, like, maybe you want to hear people talk about the constant. Um, we do these things called corners. We've already done several of them. But one we do is called Accent Corner, where I quiz Neil and Dave on whether or not the um, accent uh, attempted uh, execution of an accent on the episode itself is uh, the, the natural accent of the actor. So Kevin Durand, who plays Martin Keeney, uh, is he from Las Vegas? Nevada. Is he a Nev- Nevadian? Did he vote by a slim margin for Joe Biden? What do you, what do you, what do you think? What do you think, Neil? Um, God, no, I don't. I don't think so. I'm, I'm probably wrong about this, but I was pretty sure that Kevin Durand is Canadian, so okay. I'm going to go with Canadian. Uh, Dave, mm, is he Canadian or is he just an X Men Origins Wolverine? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say, yes, he's from Nevada, just because they're like, hey, you got to say you're from somewhere. And they they just use the actor's real thing. Uh, Kevin Durand, with a D at the end, is indeed from Canada. So, uh, yes. Damn. 
and from, in X-Men Origins Wolverine. He's from Ontario. In this this is a tiny 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 spoiler for uh the HBO series The Undoing which will air this Sunday. Uh in a scene, uh Canadian uh treasure Donald Sutherland has to say the word cocksucker multiple times. Mhm. But he says it so Canadianly. It's like it's like cork soaker. soaker. It's like it's, it's so funny. Um. All right. Sorry. Hopefully, kids were not listening when I said that bad word. All right. And then, um, Desmond Sargent is actually an actor I recognize, and I don't even want to give you the person's name. But do you think that is actually a Scottish person, uh, drilling Desmond in the past? I mean, I don't know if it's. I think I know who that is. I think I know that actor. I so, mean, I know that actor. Yeah. Although the last time I saw that actor, I believe was in Preacher. So that's not he very was in Scottish. Preacher. He was in Preacher. That is true. Um, I'm gonna go yes, Scott. That one seemed authentic. There are some other soldiers in these in that scene at the Scottish regiment where I'm like. What's going on with that guy's act? Like the guy in the truck where he's like, oh, what does he say to him? Is he's like, he's like right when Desmond figures out he's got to go call Penny and the, the other guy just very questionable. But I'm going to say that the sergeant is Scottish. Dave, I'm going to disagree for the hopes of being right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I should have let you go first, uh, Dave. Uh, yeah, that actor's name is Graham McTavish. He is indeed very Scottish. I know him best from his work on Outlander, but he was also, um, yes, on Preacher. So I feel like mm. saying he's an Outlander actor just sort of gives the game away. <laughs> um, yeah. The fact that I knew his name was Graham McTavish kind of. Oh, gave did you away. know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was, I'm like, I at least know that name. <laughs> Uh yeah, so there there we go. So that um I I haven't dug into the other soldiers, but that's accent corner. Uh, Martin Kimi's here, and I'm pretty excited for that. Kimi, I love Kevin Durand with a D at the end. Um, if you've never seen the the film Mystery Alaska, where he plays a hockey oh, player, oh, I love that movie, a true joy. So there you go. Excellent. I think that's time for some freighter crew check-in, because we seem to be right around them. We have Kimi, Omar, the creepy doctor, who he's creepy, but also just like a little too casual. (laughs) Casual and creepy. Like he's like, he's exactly the kind of doctor you would imagine ended up on a mysterious ship funded by a corporate mysterious entity. (laughs) Uh-huh. Where they're like, we're not sure what you're going to see here. Uh, uh-huh. Time? Question mark? <laughs> and then Mikowski, uh, who does not make it through the episode, but we get to see him. R.I.P. Mikowski. Why, why he couldn't come to the to the phone. And R.I.P. Uh, Brandon. And yeah. Oh, yeah. there's still a mysterious uh, Regina. Well, if we're still uh, sticking around these corners, you're right. R.I.P. Mikowski. Neil... Who gets the Charlie Pace Memorial Final Words Award? <laughs> well, we haven't had anybody die in the last couple episodes, so this award took a few weeks off. But uh, Minkowski definitely gets it this week for uh, dying mid-sentence when he uh, says, but when the captain finds out, I feel sorry. Doomp. <laughs> and he never he Thump. never gets back to right. finish. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, Minkowski. 
Tough break um, for Oscar winner Fisher Stevens. Yeah, Oscar winner Fisher Stevens, RIP. And what's really fun about, I mean, like, I'm going to give you this one, you you commies, this one spoiler. This is the last we see of Minkowski. <laughs> okay, Minkowski's <laughs> dead. We might see his lifeless, I don't know, he might pull a Tywin Lannister, we might see his lifeless body again, but he is dead. He's done. Um, but what's fun about reading, like, all the recaps from the time is, like, all these recappers are like, no way is that it for Minkowski. No way you get an actor of Fisher Stevens caliber <laughs> to just show up to die in one episode. <laughs> Um, but he did. He showed up to die one episode. Do you know who George Minkowski is named after? Uh, no. No. Ah, there is did a... Did he invent a radio or something? A German mathematician called Hermann Ooh. Minkowski. Minkowski is perhaps best known for his work in relativity, in which he showed in 1907 that his former student, Albert Einstein's special theory of relativity could be understood geometrically as a theory of four-dimensional space-time, since known as the Minkowski space-time. So, mm. there you go. Oh, hey. Mm-hmm. I talk about space-time all the time. I didn't mm-hmm. know it was a Minkowski space-time. It's time. a Minkowski space-time. Hey, I got to talk about Back to the Future in a new type, type of way. <laughs> Neil, do you know where the, you, you've used it a couple times. You know where the phrase timey-wimey comes from? Doctor Who, right? Do you, do you know that episode of Doctor Who? I don't mean to like um, fake geek girly or anything like that. Do you know <laughs> the reference you're making? But like, I'm no. curious. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, not off the top of my head, no. Dave, do you know? Uh, what specifically episode was Timey Wimey first introduced? Was in? it a David Tennant episode? No, yes. it is. It yes. is a David Tennant yes. episode. Okay, so I we're just don't warm. know which the library. No, it's called Bl- it's called Blink, and it's about um, oh oh these weeping Sorry. angels that will sort of uh, blink you back into time, um, basically not killing you but sending you b- back into the past, so effectively killing you because you get, then get to live your life out in the past. But you're gone from the current timeline. So you're effectively dead, right? Um, and and then they, like, use your potential. They feed off the potential energy of your life. Anyway, the doctor gets stuck back in time. And he is trying to explain uh, the way that um, time works to Sally Sparrow, whose character in that episode played by Carrie Mulligan, pre-fame Carrie Mulligan. And he ca- he describes it as wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like become this default way uh, to sort of hand wave away time travel storylines that don't make sense or seem kind of confusing. Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff comes from, that's from Stephen Moffat, Blink, starring David Tennant. There you go. I forgot that's how the Blink Angels operated, because there's also like another episode in the future with another doctor where they kind of do aliens, but with yeah. the, the, the angels. Yeah, you know who's anyway. in that episode? Jorah Mormont. Oh, wow. Jorah Mormont. That, a real actor's name. I'm not certainly not a Game of Thrones character. That's okay. I don't actually. I was just reading about him today. Not important. You know what? Because this podcast, it's about Lost. <laughs> we do not get any more confirmed confirmed Oceanic Six uh, detective corner people. So we're still with Kate, Jack, Hurley, Saeed. Even though we know some other people are off the island. Got uh, title. But we Aaron. do very importantly have our first member of the Oceanic Six on the freighter. <laughs> It's true. That's true. So he's he made, made it, it all the way to the boat. Yeah. He's, he's that many hey, nautical miles closer to 
to being not on the island anymore. Why Why didn't we hear about them last week? Well, time vortex. <laughs> Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. <laughs> they were in that storm for a long time stuff. Like a day, basically. Right. Yeah, yeah it's like it's like uh it's like that movie Interstellar where it's like, you know, 30 seconds, 30 <laughs> extra seconds uh, near a gravitational anomaly is like 6 years on a spaceship. I don't know. I don't understand that movie either. Uh so not to <laughs> too much uh time stamp Desmond and Penny's relationship, uh but more to look at what some new information we get in the flashback. There's a fun lore dump or not lore dump but i guess lost easter egg in lost where we see uh charles whitmore buying the ledger to the black rock and we get a little backstory on that black rock ship it was definitely a slave ship and uh definitely we disappeared and um now we have more information about black rock and island border i like i this is some good fantasy slash science fiction storytelling because even the like little corners of scene settings are packed full with useful information uh in the constant instead of just like weird side things so now we got we got to learn a little bit more about the black rock and it is very creepy that uh widmore happens to be buying that i would think uh he doesn't seem like or we saw him buying art that appeared to reference the island previously, which would actually be later. Oh, what? oh, my head. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> <laughs> right, because the stuff we've seen from about Penny and Desmond's relationship happened in 2001, right? Correct. No, what? No. The part we where seen... they were going to get married? No, that's before the army. Oh, no, that's before the army. Yeah. There's another part where we... Here's my understanding of the Desmond timeline, and correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, okay go ahead. Desmond maybe got a girl pregnant or didn't, but decided he didn't want to marry her. So uh, what do you do when you decide you don't want to marry a girl? Obviously, go to a monastery. That's fine. Right. Totally, totally normal reaction, all right? He gets booted from the monastery because he's not supposed to be their brother, and he meets Penny, and they get in a relationship. And he's like, maybe I'll marry Penny, except uh, I'm not good enough for her daddy. So I've got some insecurities around that. So I'm going to break up with her uh, and join the army. <laughs> Totally normal thing to do when you break up with someone. Join the army. Okay. Dozen joins the army. He gets dishonorably discharged from the army for some reason. I don't know why. Goes to jail. Pro- maybe for this incident. Maybe for going to Oxford. I don't know. Goes to jail. Gets out of jail. Decides he's going to prove himself to Penny, but really her father, by sailing around the world. Totally normal reaction. In Libby's uh, boat. In Libby's boat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so Penny sees him once, like, you know, at that at that stadium run where mm-hmm. he met Jack. Penny sees him one more time before he goes. And she's like, you don't have to do this. Why don't we just get married? And he's like, nope, your father's approval is more important to me than you. And uh, <laughs> nope, my boat. internalized classism <laughs> is rising above all my other decision making at this point. And he gets on a boat and he sails and he crashes on an island. And then he has to sit in a hatch for a while and press a button. And that brings you up to date with Desmond. Right? That's the timeline, as I understand it. So, All right. So Charles Widmore, collector of art pieces that are expensive and are island adjacent. Uh, A couple of times throughout time, 
maybe has nothing to do with Desmond and Penny, but that's that that, that timeline, that relationship timeline feels right. Feels right. And really, it's about the feeling. That was why, where we started this That's episode. That's what I said. It's, if the emotion works, then it works. I mean, Dozen's life is wild on paper. <laughs> like, absolutely wild. Um, and, and, and the messiness of, like, there, I think it is a, if you want to get technical, I think there's a little bit of a continuity error for Penny to be like, get out of your Desmond. And he goes, I won't call for another eight years. And then she, like, l- sees him later at the stadium run. Like, that's the timeline, right? Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. so she sees him again before he calls her on Christmas Eve, like, eight years later. So that's not the last time they see each other. But breakups are messy, you know? And you're in, you're out. So sometimes sometimes things get complicated. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I think the other thing we have to check out uh, that we were sort of hinted about around this very excellent story is uh, someone uh, smashed up the radio and seems (gasps) to be... Who could it Helping be? out. Who could it be? And open a door. Like yeah, open yeah. a door. A door that needs to be open. So Seems it's like be it's ben, uh, Ben's, Ben's man. man. Yeah, Ben's Ooh. man on the inside. Well, Ben's man on the inside being friendly to our uh, Saeed and Desmond is also kind of a development because usually Ben's men aren't very friendly to our losties. That's Ben's true. Ben's man or, or underwater lesbians. Although maybe Ben's man is just, you know, pro anyone who's island like team island i gotta get i'm gonna guess uh regina gotta be this mysterious regina (laughs) Regina, whose voice we've heard i'm just all for the man on the inside being a a wool man on the inside um (laughs) (laughs) have we also mentioned that uh penny's been calling the freighter that's that's Mm -hmm. important yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, Penny's been calling the freighter, which tracks off of the ping that was given to Antarctica, correct? Yeah. Right, was, right. Was, yeah. yeah, that was the last time we saw Penny having showing any interest in the island, uh, so we assumed that it was going to be her boat. It was not Penny's boat, but Penny is aware of this boat, thanks to Charlie. I have, I have a question for you guys. Uh, mm-hmm. Barring... Penny's cameo at the in the season three. I believe she has a cameo in both the season three and season two finales, right? You know, right? Sh- showing up, mm-hmm. uh, answering, Penny, answering that's phone Penny's calls. time to shine. <laughs> Barring those cameos, how many episodes do you think Sonia Walger has before she shows up in this episode? I think she's only in one, two. One? The mm, aren't there two Desmond episodes? Standalone Desmond episodes, the monastery one, and then fla- and um, flashes. Well, uh, oh yeah, oh no, the one where he's at the stadium—that is a finale. That's a season two finale. So maybe one other episode. So yeah, far, no, um, a little bit more than that. So Penny has been in. She was in Live Together, Die Alone. That's when we right. first meet her. Mm-hmm. Flashes before your eyes. Uh. Catch twenty two, and mm-hmm. through the through the looking glass of two. So she has two episodes that are Desmond episodes, as you mentioned, two season finale cameos. Though I guess you could call the season two finale a Desmond episode if you want to. Um, and then she shows up in the constant. And I just think it's funny because like Penny is like feels so important and has been in so little of the show thus far. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just like really powerful. I think it speaks to Sonny Wolver's ability to just like 
really uh, tap into the emotion of this relationship. You know what I mean? Like when she mm-hmm. shows up, at the <laughs> she shows like we talked about this in the monastery episode and she just like picks up that wine. You're just sort of like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, she's so <laughs> cool. I'm in love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, so like you're just really invested in Penny picking up that phone and then she does. Oh, my God. It's amazing. So, yeah. If you think about people that would be on a plane ride that, you know, would crash and be on an island, I'm actually surprised there isn't, like, another instance of the person I love is off the island. Like, that's a sparsely used trope on Lost, but when they do use it, it's usually Desmond and Penny, and it's, like, the bedrock of an emotional core. Jack could want to hike anywhere, and Locke wants to find a cabin, and those are maybe intellectually interesting, but Desmond needs to get back to Penny, and that makes sense. This is something that I talked at length uh, with Griffin about, so I don't, you know, I, you don't have to like delve too deeply into it. But something I do think is interesting is this idea of like a lot of the losties are running away from something. If you think specifically of like Cat, uh, Kate, and Sawyer, you mm-hmm. know, the whole speech that Bed gives of like, "What do you have to go back to, Sawyer? Why, why don't you just stay here?" sort of thing. And Desmond is the one who really, like, other than like Son, who now has like. A hardcore motivation not to be on the island because of her health and safety uh, in her pregnancy. Um, Desmond has the has the most pulling him back off the island. Do you know mm-hmm. the rest of them mm-hmm. don't really like? There's, you know, Jack wants everyone. Jack wants to be the hero and save everyone, but like, I I can't think. Son of anyone. wants to have her baby, but those are the two. Yeah, I, I can't really think of anyone else who's like, I gotta get home. I gotta yeah. get home. You know, everybody I mean? else is hanging out at the at the galley. Bernard the was the only one for like a minute. He's like, "We got to get these SOS <laughs> rocks out here." And then Rose is like, "Buddy, think about it. We're staying. <laughs> I've got cancer. We're not going back." So, um, yeah, it's interesting to me. Uh, yeah, that that well, that it's dichotomy. a good way to it's a good way to shift uh, the intention because like. You're pretty much if everybody was constantly like, we got to get off the boat beyond sea, or got to get off the island beyond season one. That would be it'd be a completely different show. It's like kind of not sustainable. I don't want to watch six seasons of people trying to get off the island. I mean, we might, but we already know that like six of them get off the island, so it's obviously going to change into something else. But like that, that seems like a. Like, even the Swiss family Robinson just gave up and settled in at some point, you know? Like, you're on an island. Things aren't that bad. You got people you love and care about. Except for Desmond, who needs, you know, to to, to finish his star-crossed crossed lover's journey. Or die of a nosebleed trying. <laughs> or at least make a couple phone calls to his girlfriend. Yes. This, finally, finally, the phone call... Uh, it, from Penny actually reaches Desmond. So yeah, it did take four seasons, but <coughs> we got here. All right. Before we head to our interview, what do we have left to do? Oh my God. History. This episode is like a romance. <laughs> I forgot about like the romance thing. <laughs> yes. Each week we pick some people who need to kiss on this Island of mystery or its surrounding storylines. Usually that's hard. 
Last week was an episode called Egg Town, which was poorly named. Joanna, how did we do on our jungle of history? All right. So, like, our listeners on our Slack really picked up on some, like, vibes between Miles and Kate. Uh, our listeners on Twitter were like, no, thank you, uh, to Miles and Kate. <laughs> A 7.2% of the vote. Uh, ben and Locke and Eggs, uh, once again, our Slack uh, listeners are really feeling that in the live watch. 18.5% of the vote. No, thank you. Kate and Sawyer, like, who usually do pretty well in this kind of thing. Only 20% of the vote. Because the lion's share of the vote, a resounding 54% of the vote, went to quote-unquote roommates, Hurley and Sawyer. <laughs> so, uh, step Making out on the couch, line. Uh, watching Xanadu. <laughs> watching Xanadu. Xanadu. <laughs> um, and this week we have a really tricky one for you. Are you ready? This is actually inspired by one of our listeners. Uh and I could not find who they were, but uh, I take no credit for this. This belongs to one of our listeners. So this is The Constant, arguably, uh, no, inarguably the most romantic episode of Lost. So here are our history nominations, nominees. Desmond and Penny in 1996. So that's short Des and Penny and pissed off Penny, justifiably pissed off Penny in 1996. Desmond and Penny 2004. So that's wild-eyed, Jesus hair, Desmond, and and loyal, faithful, loves the heck out of Christmas. Penny. <laughs> Christmas time, Penny. <laughs> Christmas, Penny. <laughs> then we've got 1996, Penny. That's piss off, Penny. And wild eyed, Jesus hair, 2004, Desmond. And then we've got 1996, Desmond, short hair, Desmond, and 2004, Christmas, Penny. So those are your options: Desmond, Penny, 1996, Desmond, Penny, 2004, 1996, Penny, 2004, Des. Or 1996 Des, 2004 Penny. But either way, Desmond and Penny are smooching <laughs> in this episode, even if it's just via over the phone. <laughs> Do you, should we just put a fifth one in there that just says Saeed and see what happens? <laughs> He's very good in this episode. Saeed and a radio that needs to be fixed. <laughs> yeah, Saeed, when he saw the like all the dangling wires from that busted up calm wall, and he's like, ah, ooh. ooh. <laughs> Well, I know what I'm doing for the next period of time. You you go time travel or pass out or whatever you're doing over there. Fetch, I'm going to patch this thing together. Fetch me my arm, arm skin oil. <laughs> I got some... Uh, that was a <laughs> gross thing to say. Anyway. Um, All right. Yeah, this is a great episode. Uh, book Club, I mean, I, uh, I talked about this a little bit with Griff as well, but um, Book Club is not just Slaughterhouse Wives, but it's also The Odyssey, of course, because... Uh, Odysseus and the Odyssey is trying to get back to his loyal wife, Penelope. So, there you go. Oh, Desmondius and Penny. Okay. No? I feel like you could have quit where you were ahead of Yep, I really could have. But you know what? Uh, (laughs) Sometimes you go the extra mile for the people that you love. Let's hear the extra long, extra excellent conversation you and Griffin had right after this. Hey folks, the holidays are right around the corner and there is no other reason to feel stressed. But if you're feeling stressed about the holidays in particular, or okay, anything else, if something is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals... BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available to you in many areas. Plus, we're not supposed to be leaving our house. So it's a good idea to stay at home and try BetterHelp. Their service is available for clients worldwide. 
You can log on to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone session sessions so you won't have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. Plus, don't be inside with other people and groups. That's a bad idea right now. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. You don't have to wait for your previous counselor to concede or anything. You just get to choose. (laughs) It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. You can visit their website. You can go to betterhelp.com dot com slash reviews that's better h-e-l-p dot com slash reviews and read testimonials that are posted daily like this one which is about a therapist named michelle michelle gave me lots of good advice and recommended uh, and recommendations for my situation she even sent me extra information pertaining to my needs she was a great listener i felt that she had knowledge understanding and compassion a great combination for a counselor. So what you're going to want to do here is you're going to want to visit betterhelp.com slash storm. That's better com slash storm and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So as a reminder, you can go to betterhelp.com dot com slash storm and you're gonna get ten percent off your first month that is betterhelp.com slash storm all right it is a desmond episode and that can only mean one thing which is the return of one of my favorite uh people in the world host of the blink check podcast star of the take on amazon it's griffin newman hello griffin how are uh, you thank you so much for that uh sweet introduction <laughs> it's very kind of you to say uh you're one of my uh, my favorite people uh joe well, and you have to say that now because i have to say that now you're right i've been peer <laughs> pressured but i i realized as you were saying that the like uh this is a Desmond episode, so it has to be. I realize this is like a trick that I use very often, which is uh, uh, force myself to become the go-to blank guy on different podcasts. <laughs> there are like a couple different podcasts where I've done this, where I'm like, I need to come back anytime you talk about this. This is my beat. Uh, and I will myself into becoming a, a heavy recurring character. I have to say the Desmond beat is a pretty good beat to be it's on. It's a great you know, beat. So. It's a great beat. I mean, he's my favorite guy. Yeah, he's he's still my favorite aspect of this show. And I think the part of the show that remains purely positive in people's minds, you know? Yes, that's true. I think that's true. It's like the especially this episode, um, which is considered the best episode of Lost and one of the best episodes of television ever because it's kind of a contained adventure. Actually, you can show it to people out of context and I think they can follow along. Mm -hmm. Um, And so is unsullied by whatever fair or unfair assessments there are of the legacy of Lost, you know? Yeah, Um, and I'm I'm generally a a pro-Lost guy in retrospect. I have never pulled the trigger on the full rewatch, but I rewatched the whole Desmond arc in anticipation of the last time I was on this show for... uh, Which episode was that? Uh, Flash Before uh, Your Eyes, I think? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, And rewatched this one again. 
uh, in preparation for this episode because I, I tend to mush the Desmond episodes together in my mind. I need to rewatch this yet again to remember what happens in constant because I'll always add in scenes from other Desmond episodes. Um, yeah. If I'm being really perfectly honest with you, I had to edit your last one like a, yes. a, a bit to yes. get all the constant stuff out of it. That's the thing. I, 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 was, I, I, I was having like a Desmond style difficult time <laughs> staying in the reality Flashing, of Flashes yeah, Before yeah. Your Eyes. I forgot yeah. which episode we were talking about for a while and I forgot which yeah. things happened in what episode. I'm, I'm glad you edited it because I was worried that it was like, oh, I already said some of this stuff forgetting which episode what happened but i'm very clean on just constant now and i think desmond is just like it's the arc that they just kind of hit perfectly it feels like one that developed organically it feels like one of those examples of like a character that just kind of hit and a performance that hit and that they started doing more with than they ever anticipated it definitely feels like a character that wasn't part of like the master plan originally. And it just has such a perfect self-contained sort of emotional narrative without any missteps. You know, it feels like they got just the right amount of Desmond. They hit every beat. It's such a satisfying arc and everything that it touches on in terms of the larger mythology of lost, I feel like is stuff that people feel positive about, you know, Well, I wanted to talk to you, like, obviously, you're so good at breaking down story and why certain story uh, stories work better than others. But I wanted to start actually with an actor question for you, because mm-hmm. you are a, a, a critic and an actor at the same time. Um, okay, so this episode is directed by Jack Bender, who directed a lot of Lost episodes. He's like the main um, in-house guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's the main guy. But then he, like, he developed this reputation off of Lost for being really good at emotional storytelling um specifically drawing uh really potent emotional uh, performances from his actors and so he went on to direct um the episode of game of thrones the door which is the one where hodor dies right which is another mm-hmm. time jumpy episode like it's really clear why the thrones folks reached out to jack bender he only directed two episodes of thrones and it's the door and another one and i think they had him do two because that's how they were like assigning the episodes in sort of a block shooting kind of way mm-hmm. um but so they had jack bender do like basically their version of the constant the door in game of thrones and um it's funny because i talked to jack bender about working on thrones and like he just did not have the foggiest idea of what was happening on the show and that is fine (laughs) yeah he was just like he was like what's a dire wolf i don't know i have no idea and he was like and there's like footage you can see of him directing basically there's like a guy next to him with a binder who had to be like tell him what the character names were and so like like he had no idea of the details of the plot mechanics of whatever Mm -hmm. and it didn't matter because what he was there to do was to like um shout directions at the actors to draw this level of emotion out of them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's tremendously su- successful in that episode of Game of Thrones, that kind of emotion that he pulls out of the actor who plays Hodor, f- a far more sophisticated performance than we've seen from that character thus and that actor thus far, all that sort of stuff. And it reminds me so much of this final telephone call that happens in the oh, episode. Yeah. So yeah. This is a big, that's a big preamble. But my question to you is like, what is your experience being directed uh, with with directors who are better at technique and all that sort of stuff like that? And then the directors who are better maybe at tapping into emotion or drawing emotion out of you? Yeah, it's a uh, really good question. It, it, TV is such a weird uh, beast uh, 
And I, I've done a lot of, uh, not a lot of, but a, a handful of recurring parts on TV. I've done even more, probably like one, two episode guest spots. And then The Tick was the only show I was on where I was like a regular for every episode, you know, for two full seasons. And they're definitely different experiences when you're like a guest star on TV. You you feel like a substitute teacher or something. It's hard to really feel like you're in control of your domain. And you're also sort of like freelancing at an office. You, You have to very quickly adapt to what the lay of the land and the tone is and you're learning shit at the same time as you're having to do shit and then once you feel like you maybe start to figure it out you're out of there um and that's a case where the director is really instrumental you know because they have to i find good actors directors put extra energy into one episode guest stars you know Uh, to a certain degree you have to coddle them because part of your job is you have to make them feel comfortable very quickly Uh, whereas the regulars on a on a show are gonna feel a sense of autonomy at that point uh not even autonomy but i'd say even more so uh authorship you know because it's the opposite right you're like we're the students we're here in the class every day and now you're a substitute teacher we know how this works better than you even though (laughs) you're in charge we understand the dynamic of this classroom so there's a weird push and pull there and it's not like I'm someone who's, uh, you know, a territorial fighting for ego and status actor like that. And I think Tick was a very collaborative show. But there is that kind of thing where, you know, if you're like a a co-lead on a show like I was, um, the director kind of comes to you. and, And a good one, I think, to some degree is trying to figure out how do you do things here? You know, they'll come to you for advice in that kind of way. Um, but I think most directors I have worked with in television across those various things, you know, and being like a recurring is sort of in between those two things, just without the job security Um, (laughs) or no one really listens to you, but you feel at least a little comfort that, you know, the lay of the land. Um, All right. I found that the best directors I've worked with in television, I've worked with a lot of really great directors in television. I've been very lucky in that regard. People who came from pe- features, you know, who didn't do a lot of TV, uh, people who are just vets in TV and, you know, some of the best. Um, they all sort of know what their speedball is, so to speak. Their fastball, rather. I'm mm-hmm. so good at sports analogies. Um, but, but I was like, oh, we're about to talk about bur- sure. uh, drugs? No, no, no. Yeah, okay, they, they, okay. they know how to mix their heroin and their coke <laughs> sure. at the right, in the right percentages. Um, they know what their fastball is in that yeah. sort of Jack Bender way, where it's like, people hire me because this is my specialty. And in Tick, where I didn't have uh you know say in who we were hiring but the producers were telling me like here's who we're talking to about these episodes um they would always talk about the strategy like she seems like a good pick for this because she's really good at comedy she's worked on these shows and this episode has a lot of fast sort of ensemble banter stuff and this episode's more emotional and she's really good at this she works more in drama and this episode is more fight scenes this guy's worked on a bunch of the dc shows he's going to be really good with the stunts and the effects and stuff like that and so i do think tv showrunners and producers have to be smart about knowing casting directors in the right way 
And then I, I think as a director, your job is to kind of come in and do the thing that they know you're best at doing while also trying to learn the other weird peculiarities of a show. And, and I, I know I'm going on long in this question, but it, it no, is. No, no. I, I was thinking about all of this while watching while watching this episode because it is such a profoundly potent episode emotionally yeah. for a show that is so dense right uh that is so based in mythology um not just of of the universe it's set in but the characters themselves and was a show that was famous for being an early network like oh you can't just jump in on any episode you're gonna have to watch everything and you're gonna have to spend time on message boards (laughs) i do agree with you that i think fundamentally you could show this episode to someone and it would work as one hour of storytelling there's shit they won't get but it's shit that isn't completely necessary um and for well, me, stakes, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, sorry. What were you going to say? Well, I just think that the stakes are so well contained in this episode yeah. because you've got like, it's a one, two, three of like, you've got uh, the Minkowski stakes, the dead rat Eloise stakes. And then uh, I think his name is Brandon, who was whoever was with Minkowski, who is mm-hmm. already dead. Right. So some yeah. guy's already dead. Minkowski's dying before our eyes. The rat dies. And you're like, all of this is, uh, you know, imminent the sword that's hanging over this handsome Scotsman's head in this yeah. episode. And you can you can grok that. You're like, okay, if he doesn't get this, then he's going to Minkowski out of this episode. You know what I mean? And Oscar winner Fisher Stevens, like, you know, did a great job making that look like a really painful way to go. So you yeah. don't want that to happen to this nice, uh, nice man. Yeah. It, it, you know, uh, uh, Blank Check, the podcast I do with uh, David Sims from The Atlantic, we started out as being a Star Wars prequel podcast. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. We evolved uh, significantly from there. But originally our our bit was we investigated the prequels serial style trying to figure out what the fuck they're about um and uh a big breakthrough i had watching them seriously and there's a lot i like about the prequels uh but there's Mm -hmm. a lot that i think fundamentally doesn't work uh i feel like now we've gotten to a time where you have your sort of prequel apologists who argue they're perfect and you have your people who hate them out of hand and i'm pretty even-handed with them i think um But it is that thing of watching the prequels and then watching the original trilogy. That's the major difference for me, which is for how much Star Wars is bogged down in mythology and world building and all this shit. In the original trilogy, the stakes are so clear and you always understand the emotional journeys of your main characters. And that's why it's universal, you know, like the the Luke dreaming of something more, uh, not wanting to end up like his father. That shit is just so potent that uh it it transcends everything that you don't need to understand you know exactly what a jedi is or what planet is which or any of that sort of shit for people who don't want to engage with all the nerdiness of it and the prequels it's so hard to track on a scene-to-scene basis what people's goals are and what their emotional stakes in anything are and this that's the huge difference for me and i think for whatever complaints people have about uh you know the the disney films I feel like Force Awakens in particular, that was like the thing that it got right. That's the J.J. Abrams instinct of just yeah. like, you know, it, it can go wrong. He can fuck it up. But he does have this instinct to be like, oh, he knows how to start a thing like he, no other, like no <laughs> other. 
like and, no other right yeah. and, and this episode is obviously pretty far distant from his involvement in the show but it feels like it still encapsulates well, all the best aspects of what he does except it fucking ends with a knockout you know <laughs> i do love a, a a griffin newman uh tangent um honestly i do like i genuinely love that you were just like let me talk about star wars for a little while because i do have thoughts on this which is that um the Mandalorian, which I am like trying to parse what doesn't doesn't work about the Mandalorian mm-hmm. for me, has has been the thing that has really made me think about Star Wars as as a story that is about archetypes, uh, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And when that deployment of an archetype works, as it does perfectly in the original trilogy, and when it's less successful, like I don't want to, I can't just blanket critique. I like the Mandalorian a lot, mm-hmm. but like it it fails to sometimes it fails to feel like any kind of like depth for me and so i'm like okay so what is it about the archetypes of the mandalorian that don't work as well for me as the archetypes of the original trilogy um and and that's just an ongoing question i have but i think it is this idea of like archetypes and what could be a more classic archetype than desmond hume the lost man trying to get home to his love this is like Penelope Widmore is named Penelope because she's named for Penelope from the Odyssey. Like right. this is a, this is Odysseus. Like He's, this is a yes, classic it's Greek story. tragedy. Yeah. He is yeah. you know, there's so many epically tragic figures on Lost. They love mm-hmm. that, you know, sort of revealing mm-hmm. the massive L's that people took in their life before they crashed <laughs> onto this island. But right, he is right. the one where it just feels like he has the most sort of absurd level of pathos and i think part of it is that it's tied to like he seems like this fundamentally decent kind man who yet has this massive achilles heel which is he was so busy trying to win over the the sort of approval of this father that he fucked up the love of his life you know that he took his eye off the ball and it does it feels like uh you know something out of a greek tragedy it feels like he is like a moral tale and part of what makes this episode so thrilling is you see him turn his narrative around like even though this is almost you know the midpoint of the series at whole he has a lot further to go this is the episode where you're like oh he's not just gonna be a a a character of tragic failure over and over again yeah he makes the right decision this time and um we've seen him make a lot of wrong decisions what's funny about there's a couple things about desmond um that work in this way um most of the people on the island you're talking about like the big l's that people took before they got to the island and that's why most of the people on the island are running away from something Mm -hmm. right they're running away from something and so is there a strong motivator to get them back to the mainland you know like kate is the is the most or, or sawyer the most obvious examples of these characters who like you know are are literal outlaws or all these various things and so they're like why why would i go back when i'm like i'm a big fish in a little pond here and and i can start a new life for myself but desmond is the complete reverse he's the man like desperate to get back to something and um like jack wants everyone off the island because he wants to be the hero and save people you know Mm -hmm. what i mean but like desmond has this like brass ring on the other side of this journey and and as you know like we're relieved 
that anyone has made it off the island, like that that Saeed and, and Desmond have made it to this freighter is like as far as anyone has gotten since like Michael sailed off into the distance. <laughs> yeah. And we haven't seen him since, you know. And so and and we're happy for Saeed because we want Saeed to rescued sure but like it matters so much more that desmond is that many nautical miles closer to, oh, totally. to penelope winmore you know what I that, mean? that's a great point that i never really processed before that almost everyone else on lost is running away from something uh in in one way or another you know uh and and he is one of the guys who like everyone else wants to get back to society because they don't want to be trapped on an island but sure. but he's they the want guy... regular showers who doesn't you right know? he's the guy who really has like a thing you know like a singular thing that he wants that he needs that the island is preventing him from and and i also just feel like it is such a universal thing like i you know i live alone i am single I uh, got out of a long relationship, uh, you know, a handful of months before uh, this pandemic, when everything shut down and I've been uh, in, you know, a hatch of my own, rarely leaving my apartment. And I find that as time goes on, I spend more and more time reliving things from my past, perhaps not in an entirely healthy way, but it's a byproduct of not having other people to have conversations with that, <laughs> that I perhaps obsess too much over the last nine months over the things I wish I'd done differently in my life and the things that I think had gone well that I now wish I could get back or whatever. You know, I try to keep all of it in check, but it, my mind constantly goes to those places. And there's a lot of that obsession, especially with like romantic relationships of like, what if I had just done this one thing differently? You know, yeah. what yeah. if I had said this one thing differently? And I think that is a very, very universal human experience i i think anyone who is an adult and has had at least one serious relationship knows that feeling and and that's what sort of transcends with desmond is a the stakes of the crazy sci-fi universe shit in this episode are so clear here's this guy he's dead here's a guy who's in the process of dying you know <laughs> yeah. He's next yeah. in line. We're seeing yeah. the results of what's going to happen to him. What has he got to do? He's got to find a constant. What's his constant? He's got to get her to pick up the phone on this one day. It's just so clearly telegraphed at every point that you can block out everything else that's being said if you've never seen another episode of this show. But the root of it is that feeling of, you know, what if you wish you had done this one thing differently? Yeah. That question of, is it, it were you doomed was that relationship always doomed or could you have done one thing differently and saved it, you know? Yeah. And, and, and part and parcel with that, is there one thing you could do tomorrow that could bring it back? Like there's that kind of thing. I, I had, I mean, I'm not going to go down a whole rabbit hole here, but I like, I had a, a small sort of existential tailspin a couple weeks ago where I found out an ex of mine was getting married and I no. didn't realize until I saw her wedding website how much in my mind I had always sort of reserved this space of like, we might get back together someday, you know? Right. And yeah. it's some, I had not talked to her in years now, years, yeah. any f yeah. sort of communication, at least three or four years. Uh, but it wasn't until I saw this website, I was like, oh, fuck, it's actually not going to happen, you know? And totally. Yeah, and yeah. then, you know, that that sort of makes you go, like, what if I had emailed her a year ago, you know? <laughs> right. Like, all right. these sorts of things. Uh, I, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound too obsessive in this episode, but it, but it does. It no, made I, I me think feel, it's a really relatable feeling. There are some people that you yes. have, like, you, you have 
you've bookmarked them in a way that you didn't realize until like something concrete happens yes. and you're like didn't realize I was holding right. on to that okay absolutely. now it's time to let that go yeah, yeah. absolutely and and yeah. you know living through this has been similar to being trapped on an island where you start yes. to get in the headspace of these guys I mean like I, I've I've loved rewatching these Desmond episodes and it has made me want to rewatch the show in whole, but also I don't know if I can handle it right now. Like I don't know how you're going through it because there's just <laughs> so much stuff in it where I'm just like, This this is too close. I'm it's already close. in this headspace. It's pretty close. I yeah. mean, I think if we hadn't started it before um, the pandemic hit, I might have been loath to uh, to go down this path. But we're in it now, baby. Yeah, it would have become a it. new heart podcast um, instead. <laughs> I want to talk to you about um this other idea, storytelling idea that I think is really interesting in this episode, which is um, if you're watching the large, like, okay, we've talked about how if you just watch this one episode, it still it still works. The nose plays like this works, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But like, if if you watch it in the larger context of Lost, what's so interesting about this episode is we've been watching flashbacks yeah uh you know this entire time and yeah desmond had like an episode where his flashbacks were like a little like hinkier than the normal flashback but this idea of like making the flashback uh, making the main character who's having the flashbacks aware of the flashbacks that is like a it makes the frame a part of the picture for the first time which is the the kind of shit i love i almost always go for this and even as a kid i would just always love the episode of cartoon shows that broke the format in in a sort of self-aware way i now look at them and i'm like that's the product of a writer's room who's been writing 87 episodes of this show (laughs) and the guys get tired and they're just like let's do something you know bananas but but i always would get so thrilled when i could see a show breaking itself in that kind of way and somehow not spoiling it not not ruining the entire series it coming out of it even stronger. And I, I feel like I might have said this in, in the last time I was on the show, but you also might have edited this out. It feels to me like that moment in season two of Fleabag where Hot Priest looks at the camera for the first time. Right, right. You know, yeah. and suddenly it's like this thing that you've accepted as a given of just this is the storytelling device of the show is suddenly yeah. given thematic weight. Yeah. And you're yeah. just like pulled all the way in. Absolutely, absolutely. Another thing we might have talked about last time, but I'm going to bring it up again with you is, and it's something that uh, I've talked, I've brought up several times, just because it's one of my favorite things that that Damon Lindelof has said to us on this podcast. Mm-hmm. But this idea of when they were trying to break the question of like what's in the hatch and landed on Desmond, um, it's because the storytelling lesson that that Damon uh, feels is true is that the best answer to a mystery is a person. Yeah. Um, and so the bet like. What is going to be your constant, Desmond? And the fact that the answer to the what's the constant is Penelope is uh, is so powerful. Yeah. It's so yes. smart. It makes me like and like I I I dabble in screenplays that no one's ever going to see, and I keep trying to come back to this question of like, what's the answer to a mystery? A person like that's so strong, it's so good. Yes, you know. So I, yeah. and it's now this episode is legendary, as you said. Like it's it's sort of canonized as like a key text in modern television that people study. Uh, but I every time I rewatch it, and this is the one episode that even like across the years I've gone back and rewatched outside of these podcast appearances, right. I some. Sometimes right. I'm just compelled to watch it again to test, like, is, is this shit still good? Is this, like, still going to hit? Am I going to get Sometimes- choked up yet again? 
if I need a mood booster or maybe even just like a like an emotional outlet, I'll just yeah. fire up the tel- the telephone scene on YouTube and right. then just like have a catharsis and like right. go let me off just my day, sort of. check that I can still feel. <laughs> and you're like, yep, yeah. I can, I can. Am I uh, human and alive? I am. Right. Wonderful. Okay, yeah. Uh, but but I do. I think like I take it now as a given. Because I know this episode so well that, of course, Penny's is constant. I always forget until I get to the scene where Desmond asks, can it be a person, that that's not a given. That that's actually a radical idea within what they're setting up. You know, that you would bank it that much on a person who is less reliable than, say, a structure. You know? Right, right. That that you're yeah, adding no. this emotional element. It's such a a high stakes bet he's placing essentially on the idea that there's still something there. Right, the faith that he has to play to put in Penny yeah. here. There's, yeah, yeah. The, the the idea of like, do you still care about me? Not even like <clears throat> love me or whatever, but like, will you know? Will you love me tomorrow? Will you pick up the phone eight years from now? Yeah. Even though I've kind of treated you like crap. I mean, I have some questions for for Penny on some of her choices here, but like, um, the romantic in me is like really in favor of 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 her decisions. Uh, yeah. To to be so so faithful and constant to to Desmond here, but it's mm-hmm. it's just incredible. I want to ask you some time tra- travel questions please for a love of time travel uh, love time travel. i know <laughs> i know you guys have been recently talking about back to the future on mm-hmm. uh, blank check so your head is in the uh the causal loop game um something that totally. i think is really interesting this this episode has a causal loop which is one of which is a term that i learned from my co-host dave gonzalez when we talk about terminator um <laughs> another one of my favorite <laughs> franchises i love i love causal loops i love <laughs> Time travel, and especially when you can do uh, time travel romance. I'm I'm just a a regular Rachel McAdams. I'll go for it every (laughs) single time. Um, The time travel's boyfriend, Griffin Newman. So um, the... the causal loop in this episode is that in Dan's notebook, it says, if anything happens to me, Desmond Hume will be my constant, which can only exist there if Daniel Faraday sends Desmond Hume to go find him at Oxford. And that's that's the I think that's the causal loop of this episode. It's mm-hmm. actually outside the Penny Desmond thing. But I just wanted to like ask you about like causal loops or 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 the way in which time travel works effectively uh in because it's not quite time travel it's consciousness time travel which is a little different but like how does that how does that land for you in this episode i love it i mean all the back to the future episodes uh anytime we talk about the sort of like cause and effect in the back to the future franchise where actions are constantly affecting different timelines (laughs) branching out timelines altering realities sims always goes like but you know i mean that's not actually how time travel works <laughs> like he is so quick to always yeah. dismiss that that's not actually how time travel works as if we know for a fact how time travel works but i think what he's always saying is like you know theorists tend to believe that that is not how time travel would work that anything uh, that happens uh, you know that you would interfere with uh, was always destined to happen and that it's right. sort of a storytelling contrivance this idea because it gives characters time traveling uh, uh, agency to actually uh, affect things otherwise the stories don't really have stakes um, but uh, I, I certainly I think it's the romantic in me. It's the thing I want to believe because I think one of the reasons I've always been so fascinated in time travel is that idea of just like, could you change stuff? And if you could, 
would it be for the better or not? I mean, I remember like getting in trouble as a kid, you know, like fucking up and getting grounded and telling myself, like, remember this day. If time travel ever exists, you have to go back and undo this thing, you know, like about little mess ups on a day to day basis um, without really thinking of the cause and effect of it. But this is the the opposite of that. This is sort of a guy who has made such fundamental mistakes in his life trying to see if there's any way that he can save his present. And in the process of doing so, he also kind of incidentally saves his future. He finds out definitively that he has a thing to live for, you know, rather than just sort of blind hope. Um, And that just that just gets to me so hard. It it is, you know, I I I was such a uh, sucker for this kind of romantic storytelling uh, growing up and I feel like at the time that this episode aired it was like the peak of that for me um, and I've become slightly more cynical uh, about things yeah. uh, mm-hmm. in the in the 10 years or so 10 plus years since then but I watch this and every time I'm like but god damn it this is what I want to believe yeah no absolutely I want to believe that someone will keep their phone number for 8 years yeah um obsessively decorate their uh, beautiful London house as if Christmas were only ever coming once in this lifetime and pick up the phone when I call them. Right. Um, that's what I would like to believe. Right. It, it, is n- <laughs> it is not a realistic belief at all. And it's not actually fair to conceptually ask someone you love to do that. But, right. but it, it's the, yeah. the, the romance of it is so profound for me. I mean, there's the, um, the Doctor Who episode where Rory gets stuck in the past and has to wait like thousands of years yeah. to catch up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. th- that with Amy, that gets to me too. It's that same kind of thing of just like the idea of someone believing that wholeheartedly uh, in the notion that that they need to be with this one person. You know that they'll do anything and they'll wait anything and they'll make whatever sacrifice. To ultimately get to that point. I also think, I mean, I spent a lot of my teenage years hung up on a uh, weird on and off long distance thing with a person who I was fundamentally convinced as, you know, a 15 year old that I was going to spend the rest of my life with, even though we never spent more than like two or three days together spread out, uh, you know, one year at a time. Um, yeah. And so like watching this in sort of the final years of that before i sort of disabused myself of that non-functional relationship uh it just it hit me so hard it was like everything i wanted to believe in you know yeah it's um that is that is the thing about the constant like that there is um you can take a cynical view to this episode but like why would you right yeah why and so um why not just like believe that the desmond and penny thing is like is and also but part of what sells that you it's funny to go back to earlier when you were talking about like uh being a guest star versus being a regular on a show versus being recurring mm-hmm. so sonia sonia waller who plays penelope woodmore is at this point you know light recurring right and her performance i mean you know henry and cusick is great as desmond but her performance as penny really sells um First, the encounter that they have where she's she's really battling these two conflicting feelings of like, obviously, she still cares for Desmond, but she is very hurt by whatever, you know, by 
him needing to join the army rather than like stay in their relationship. And that's it, the thing a, about Desmond, yeah. by the way. He makes no small moves. He's joined a monastery, yeah. the army, and tried to sail around the world, all of which to like get away from his problems. And that's like the running away right. versus the running back towards That's the thing. Anyway. And he is a character. He made that choice. There wasn't a bad thing that happened to him in the way, same way as like Locke or Echo, where they befall this sort of tragedy. He made right. this 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 bad choice. That's where it gets into sort of the Greek tragedy aspect, you know, where it feels like there is a lesson in Desmond that his pride distracted him from the thing he ultimately was defending in his mind. Um, and 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 yeah, yeah, that you know, that that hits that that emotional performance from her. <clears throat> balancing those two feelings of like get the fuck out of my apartment slash I still love you kind of thing right and totally the, justified defense mechanism yeah. you know of just and like I'm the, not gonna fall uh, yeah. for this shit again right and then just the extreme emotion of this phone call which I've replayed so many times oh. that I and, and the and the Jake Kino music is so strong here that like it's almost like a beautiful musical number to me, especially like with the overlapping phrases yes. and the rhythm of it. And it it just has a lot. It's not actually even like a naturalistic rhythm. It's like almost like a heightened rhythm of how they deliver some of these lines. You know what I mean? And it's just sort of like, like Penny, you answer the phone. You answer the phone, Penny. Like that's, it's just like his disbelief, his trying to get a hold of his like scrambled egg brain, her disbelief, uh, you know, that he's alive. All of this, so little time that I promise, I promise, I love you, I love you, like all together. And it's just like, it is, it's, there's nothing, there's never been anything like it for no. me on television, you know? No, it's, it's setting up such a unique emotional circumstance, you know? But it is an emotional circumstance grounded in very relatable emotions as proven by the fact that I've now gone off on tangents about three previous relationships of mine. But, you know, it's like there there <laughs> yeah. are these very universal, uh, empathetic, uh, understandable concepts, but then also this circumstance that you cannot possibly wrap your head around how loaded it is, how complicated it is, how high the stakes are. And it's the melding of those two. And, like, it's it's a very basic thing, but sometimes, you know, like what you're talking about, you don't understand the effectiveness of certain storytelling techniques uh, until someone summarizes it that cleanly. Um, Danny DeVito, of all people, was on WTF. <laughs> And uh-huh. he talked about, like, getting the bug and getting into acting when he was, like, trying out for plays, uh, you know, Greenwich Village, uh, and before it really became a full career. And that moment where he felt the excitement of, like, oh, I'm actually good at this. Like, I actually know what I'm doing. And he conveyed it as, like, when you learn how to play two things at once. Mm. And I, I just thought, mm. like, yeah, that is kind of the thing for me that sort of separates good acting from great acting and also is the thing that makes people incredibly magnetic to watch. By and large, it is when someone is able to fully play two things simultaneously, which is hard to do, you know? And that whole whole phone call is full of that. Uh, It's just every single line one of them says is loaded with at least two things at the same time. Um, yeah. You know, there's the moment where the signal cuts out 
And then she says, like, can you hear me? And he goes, yeah, 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 I can hear you. She goes, good, 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 good. And it's like for a moment they forget the stakes of everything else. It goes into the banal of just the, like, right, I'm right. sorry, did I drop out? And then they go back into the emotionally <laughs> can you hear me territory. Now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's all yeah. the waves of that. When they're laughing, when they're crying, the feelings of validation, the feelings of relief, the stirred emotions. It's just it, both of them are playing so much at the same time. I would be so curious to hear how they shot it i have to imagine they flew the other actor to each place so that they could be doing the off camera you know i mean i guess for him it was easy because he already had shot the the scene at her place at her door um yeah but but it reminds me of uh, a very very safe thing to talk about on the internet but the last jedi that the the storytelling device <laughs> oh, the they sc- use with them the have Skype, the the oh, Skype, right? It's blowing up, right? But the Force <laughs> Skype is so effective, and it's the same thing where it's mostly just editing. It's mostly just yeah. cross cutting that suddenly feels so powerful and so much more loaded. And their performances are so good in those scenes, even though they're never in frame at the same time, by and large. Um, and there's a similar thing here where, like, you talk about the rhythms, but you talk about how emotionally attuned they are and how many decisions they're making and how loaded each word is with a lifetime of feelings especially when it's like you you wait seven years eight years you know loading up this one phone call in your mind i mean you think about the penny side of things and you're just like well you know at this point she's been looking for him for three years she has the boat sent out all this sort of stuff but just the idea of holding on to that for eight years, not understanding why, but knowing you have to answer the phone and wondering if that was the final ramblings of a man on the verge of losing his mind, you know, or if there is something big and inexplicable happening here that this phone call can only this phone call can save. Yeah, the st- you know, the stakes on your faith in love cannot be higher and love i mean love is the answer as the key uh Mm. as the solution like when we put on our cynical viewing helmets as like of course the most eye roll worthy um thing that you could think of but like it just works here it just really does and and i think it's because of exactly what you've talked about um which is this idea of um what what if and i'm like that's what a a lot of the flashbacks are on loss are about regrets uh of like ah here's the moment where i made the wrong choice and went down the wrong path and sort of stuff like that and so it's so human for all of us to be like you know what if i could change one thing about the past because like uh, you know, we haven't yet gotten loss has yet to give us, you know, this is the first like real confirmation, real, real, real confirmation of some kind of time travel. And loss has yet to really lay out uh, its its exact rules of how time travel works, you mm-hmm. know, um, and that's OK. But uh, in this case, this appears to be Desmond able to affect change in the past. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, what if you could change just one thing? It doesn't change the fact that he like still decided that sailing around the world was a better idea than just like having a conversation with his girlfriend right. or like whatever it is. But he went to her house and he said, you know, effectively, I'll come back to you in but, some way. Yes. Once again, yeah. I think the power comes from the fact that that was solely his fuck up, you know, like his obstacle, as opposed to so many other people, was really kind of imagined in his head. 
Like, who fucking needs Charles, Charles Widmore's approval? You know? Well, like, right. It's um, some. I saw someone compare, and I don't know how you feel about this comparison, but I saw someone compare Desmond to Gatsby, which mm. is like kind of, um, you know, I I I think Penelope is a much more worthy, uh, like you know, goal than Daisy. But if I we think agree. of, but if we think of like. Ch- being accepted by Charles Widmore yeah. um, as the like green light that he's looking at at the end of his dock or whatever, like then that is like that, that just like really tragic chasing after the wrong thing. Like you like Gatsby and you're rooting for him and he's just got his eye on the wrong prize and it's, and it's just too bad. And it has to do with like money and insecurity and all that sort of stuff like that. And of course, because it's lost and this is all loss is obsessed about, it has to do with the bad dad. Um, totally. You know what I mean? Right. And so like, you know, his, his, it's not his bad dad. It's his girlfriend's bad dad. And he, you know, just like Locke, he is, you know, in this tragic pursuit of approval from someone who he just like, as you say, who gives a shit about Charles Woodward's approval? He should, you know. Right. Charles Woodward is the kind of guy who leaves the bathroom tap running for no reason and uh, walks out of the room. I don't know why he's an asshole. And it's it's he takes his eyes so fully off the ball like the, the. the tragedy of him hurting Penny by prioritizing the feelings of the father is, is you know, it, it's a fatal mistake, nearly. Um, that gives it weight because it is something you would kind of regret for the rest of your life, but also the kind of thing where you're like, maybe I wouldn't do that, but I understand the feeling of getting so roped up in the emotion of a moment that I lose that perspective. And and I break something I can never fix. Um, but yes, as you said, the fact that the format breaks, the fact that you're seeing someone interact with the flashbacks in that kind of way. And for the first time on the show, you're like, oh, can these people like really fix each other? Not in a lock can walk again way, but in a can, can I um, mend my past kind of way? It, it gives them so much more potential going forward and he's kind of the guy whom you most want to see get a win at this point i i think it's tied to a the fact and and this gets into why the widmore thing is so big for him you know europe is still very much entrenched in uh this obsession with class like people talk about it unlike the you know the american dream for all of its good and bad, where the notion is anyone can become anything, there is still this, you know, this idea of birthright and your family lineage that that looms so large in Europe, you know, um, and, you know, you having the wrong kind of accent or being raised from the wrong kind of town or getting the wrong kind of education is something you can never overcome in the eyes of some old fashioned people like Charles Whitmore, even though he is Australian. Um, but but it is a th- <laughs> it is a thing, you know, we, we don't have many European characters on this show. And it is a complex that feels not unique, but uh, extra powerful tied to that sort of heritage as a Scotsman. Um, that that he just can't get over this idea that like I'm I'm a fucking set decorator, you know, <laughs> like it 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 haunts him even though she could not care less. Um, and and I also think I 
I feel like uh, uh, Sonia Walger has just like an amazing um, sort of emotional access. She's just a very, mm. very present, connected, emotionally intelligent actor. Uh, but yeah. there's something odd about Henry and Cusack. He is, he has this sort of epic pathos to him. But there's something a little, it, there's a slightly dark edge to him. And obviously his introduction on the show is playing into that, that he's this weird mystery figure that you can't figure out whether he's friend or foe, whether or not he's uh, sane, whether or not he can be trusted. But I feel like the writers very quickly identify that there's this odd emotional reserve to this guy, that there's something innately very sympathetic about him. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and it, it just it just works. He is the one character where it feels like he is living this very grand tragedy in every single look he gives. Well, I think it, yeah, I think it's not just his uh, pre-island decisions to just do like really messy bitch dramatic moves um, <laughs> in his life. Yeah, um, <clears throat> but it's also the fact like when we meet him, he is like a beast that has been trapped in this hatch. You know what I mean? Like he is feral. Right. He's inhuman. Despite his like, despite his regimen, right. He's like a, a a star for like all of us in the pandemic star for human interaction, feral person. Right. And then like that, that, uh, is ferality a word? Feralness? Ferality? I don't know. Anyway, that feral nature in him, like, does not necessarily go away, despite the fact that he, like, becomes part of the beach society yes. and all that sort of stuff like that. That desperation and, like, that's what he's playing for a lot of this episode. Yes. Uh, you know, and it's and it works especially when he's in, like, the present and, you know, like, Desmond is so desperate and feral all the time he cannot bo- be bothered to button all the shirts on uh, on the buttons on his shirt <laughs> yeah. and his hair is scraggly and he's got this beard and his eyes are wild and like his nose is bleeding and there's just like he's just like you know he's like Heathcliff on the moors he's just like big gothic sort of emotions yeah that's Desmond Hume you know so I mean yeah. it's another area in which the construction of this episode is really smart because him getting um sort of unmoored from the time stream allows him to get feral again you have all those scenes in both timelines where he's frightened and he's desperate and he's lashing out at people and you're getting that that sort of like scary animal energy from him as well i mean i feel like what he comes in his first appearance is that the uh, premiere of season two right and he gets an emmy nomination for that and I feel like, maybe I'm mistaken here, but in my memory, that was the season where after Lost's first season was so big and gets a bunch of nominations and categories, where then he was the only acting nomination in the second season. That it, it, there was like a weird Emmy drop-off and he was the one nomination just for that one episode. That doesn't sound incorrect. Um, I mean, like it is like uh, like Lost was an Emmy darling in his first season, wins the drama prize, right? right? And Terry O'Quinn and then wins. A- not that season. After okay. that, the I believe the only Emmys that it wins after that, I believe I need to double check, are Terry O'Quinn and Michael Emerson each win. Yes, uh, in subsequent seasons. But you're right that like Henry and Cusick being nominated is like. 
uh, they're like, well, Lost isn't, you know, the prize pony anymore, but we'll we'll shout out this this uh, wild-eyed Scotsman for sure, um, you know, sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, and it, but it's also interesting to me that like that's his least interesting episode, but there was just something dynamic about that guy. Uh, it it is here. I'm I'm looking here. It's 2006, their second season. He's the only acting nominee for guest star. That's wild. Right. It it got, you know, directing and drama series and writing and a lot of the technicals. But they go from being Naveen Andrews and Terry O'Quinn are both nominated to it's just nominated in a a guest actor category. And I, I think that just speaks to like, I can't imagine much in the same way they talk about how their plans for, um, uh, ben Linus changed when they realized how skilled uh, Emerson was and how much range he has. Yeah. I can't imagine right. they ever would have imagined that the answer to what's in the hatch would be a guy they could pin their most emo- emotional episode on. <laughs> you know? Absolutely not. But it, yeah, it, yeah, it totally. speaks to he's just bringing something weird to the stew that innately you lean in and go like, I want more of this guy. I remember being so excited when he came back. I mean, I remember like I, I was watching Lost, I think, with my mom at that point. It was like every season I had a different person or group I watched it with. Uh, <laughs> right. And I just remember being like, oh my God, they just announced Desmond's coming back for three episodes, you know? Or he's in the finale of the season. Like I, I would be so excited uh, every time they brought him back until he finally became a full cast member. Um, but there's it, there's the thing that like, uh, David Fincher, I, I saw talk about this in an interview once he summed up really well when he was talking about how they went about casting uh, uh, Lizbeth in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo because that was mm-hmm. such a wide-ranging search. And yeah. he was like, you know, I saw so many actors and so many big stars like Scarlett Johansson and Natalie Portman and Ellen Page and whomever who were all great actors and played the part really well, but it was very much acting. Like, they had to affect all of these things, which they did very skillfully. And he said, like, my whole thing is I feel like the essence of a movie star is the thing that you fundamentally cannot beat out of them. That if it's three o'clock in the morning after a really tough week and you're doing 120 takes, no matter what, they have this inherent quality that's going to shine through. And that's the reason why he cast Rooney Marr, because she's fundamentally a weirdo, right? There's no aspect of Rooney Marr having to play weird. (laughs) She has that odd sort of outsider just sort of. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And he's got whatever that thing is, that sort of like epic tragedy behind his eyes that well, I think just opened all these doors for them, storytelling wise. I mean, I completely agree with you. But what's interesting about Henry Ian Cusick is I, is I would put him in the same category as like most of the cast of the TV show Friday Night Lights, which is that those actors, I'm mostly thinking of the younger uh, kids on that show, were never nearly as good, you know, with the exception of Jesse Plemons, in another role yeah. as they were in Friday Night Lights. And it's because they were perfectly cast yeah. for those particular archetypes that they were playing. And they, and it's not that they're great performers. It's just their core essence mm. match what that show was asking them to do. You know what I mean? Like uh, Tim Riggins, Matt Saracen, like that's, that's just a, a match yeah. for those actors. And I'm not saying they are those characters, but there is, I think, just that like Rooney Mara 
hardcore weirdness, whatever that is, is in those people for those performances. And for Henry and Cusick, it is whatever is inside him, this wildness, this whatever uh, matches for Desmond. And I've seen Henry and Cusick because I love him mm-hmm. in like almost every other thing that he's done. Like, you know, he's in Scandal. He was in the the Dead Like Me movie that they sure. did, which I definitely watch. Like, and uh, and it never was the same. Well, because, I yes, you know, he, he's one of those guys for me where I always go like, why didn't anything happen for him after that? And then I look at his IMDb and I'm like, oh, he's worked regularly. But opposite from you, I have never watched any of these shows, both the, the big ones the and the small ones. Yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah. you're like, yeah. he's on 80 episodes of The 100. He's on 14 episodes yeah. of MacGyver. He's on The Passage. He's on Inhumans. He's on Scandal. Like he's had a good run. But um, I, I do think, yeah, sometimes it's time and place. And I also think that is... The aspect of loss that is always the most unheralded and least discussed in its success is they talk about in the very design of the show that they tailored parts to actors, you know, that a when they were casting, they cast wide and far. They brought people in to read for parts they were wrong for. And if someone gave a good read, even if it wasn't a good fit for Jack, they'd go, well, is there a part we can write for this guy? Is there something right. to to do with her? Because she's interesting. And in the same yeah. way, you bring someone in for one episode as a guest star, if they're bringing some other interesting energy to the table, you figure out a way to use that. I think Lindelof remains good at that. I think... Uh, 1000%. Yeah, I mean, I, I even just remember uh, someone was telling me about an actor who had gone up and got pretty far along in the process of playing, um, uh, I'm, I want to say Night Nurse, which is not right, Sister Night uh, on Watchmen. Sister Night, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, and it was an actress in her 20s and was pretty far along in the process, and then they went with Regina King. And, and the actress sort of went like, well, how could they have that fundamentally wide a range of what they're looking for the character's very different if she's in her mid-20s as opposed to like in her early 50s you know but the answer is when they decided they wanted regina king they they made the show built to regina king's strengths and what she brings to the table and maybe those are subtler harder to perceive shifts that they made in the script i don't know i didn't read the earlier versions you know but it, you watch that show and you go, no one other than Regina King could play this part. And it couldn't be anyone other than this age, you know, both in terms of the authority yeah. she has and the timeline of it and everything. But it speaks to, I think, his flexibility that in a lot of ways, TV is definitely more of an actor's medium than film is. Um, right. And, and uh, actors do get a lot more authorship over their roles uh, because you have different hands working on it. But they are, for lack of a better term the constant working on those characters throughout (laughs) everything. Yeah. I I think about that all the time with, um, with the leftovers because um, you have, um, you know, obviously that's something of an ensemble show and like lost. It has like character centric episodes, Mm -hmm. but Justin Thoreau was like the, you know, he's the Jack. He's the, uh, he's the unquestioned, lead of that show when it premieres but i think all the time about the fact that the series finale is called the book of nora because carrie coon just like kept growing and growing in hearts and minds as his character of nora durst who's not even like i would say you know the third most you know centric character in the first season and so like it's 
that's that's a thing that TV does all the time is that it shifts, it grows, it expands and contracts around what's working with an audience and what isn't. It's like it's like theater that way, I would imagine, in terms of like, you know, you can hear how the audience reacts to a line read. You can change it. You can, you know, as you continue to perform and rehearse yeah. and perform and rehearse. And films, unfortunately, are sort of like locked in this isolated um, experience. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? You don't have you can't. It's not a reactionary medium. And television is. And and yeah, I, I, I just really love I mean this is all this is all just me agreeing with your statement of like they couldn't have imagined that the answer to what in the what's in the hatch yeah would be still now te- over 10 years later the most enduring uh story centric episode of the show yeah arguably episode, the yeah. emotional center of the show but it does yeah. I mean I I think a lot about if there's a negative effect that sort of the streaming era has on television, it's you're making that very process of allowing a show to evolve as it should more difficult because you're making an Mm -hmm. entire season in a bubble and then dropping it all at once. And by and large, people watch it as kind of one thing, you know? Right. Um, And, and that makes it harder uh, as opposed to, you know, people can complain about stuff like Nikki and Paula where it's like, well, you're watching a mistake happen in real time. You're yeah. watching them make a bad choice <laughs> and then try to correct for it. And it's like, OK, yeah. that's the downside of it. But the upside of it is the evolution of something like Desmond or Ben Linus, which isn't taking 13 episodes and a year and a half to to come into effect because they're seeing week after week what people are responding to and what they aren't responding to. And I do think that is that's something I really miss about the about the Ben Jarrett. Sorry, I'm just agreeing with you in terms yeah. of like I, I I sometimes when I talk about this I worry that I'm being selfish because it hurts my ability to engage with like listeners and readers on a show if it drops sure. all at once. I like yeah. I'm like why bother? Yeah. Like try to talk about a binge show because I don't know when people are watching it and like yeah. how much they've seen it and if they've already forgotten it and stuff like that. But like let's let's pretend I have no personal stakes in this. Just as like a lover of storytelling, it bothers me that with binge culture we inhale something, we don't have a chance to like continually week by week, slow burn, interact with it. It doesn't, the story and the emotion of the characters don't stick with us yeah. the way that the week week to week television does. And then, yeah, we can't, we can't critique it. And I mean that in the best way, not in, not even like a negative way, but we can't critique it. We can't praise it. We can't condemn it for the things that do and don't work in a granular way. That's just not how we talk about those shows. And so then, yes, those shows can't, evolve and react and then you know even more damningly and then netflix cancels it after season two you know what i mean like that's that's just where where it is you know i I think people start to engage with television more like long movies which isn't fair and then i think on the on the flip side of that i think people start to engage with movies more like television you know uh with this sort of franchise obsessed culture where it's like it's all about well what are they setting up for the next movie what's the potential of the next thing and it's like You know, my my for me, a perfect ending of a superhero movie is the end of Spider-Man 2, where it's just Mary Jane looking out the window and you just have an actor very subtly conveying a complex series of emotions on their face. You know, there's no tease of what villain he's going to fight next. There's no new lingering threat. 
It's just leaving you, don't think, you with uh, the feeling. Thomas Hayden Church should have showed up at the end of Spider Man Two, or maybe a little that, little Topher Grace, touch of the Topher at the end. But that's of, of, that's uh, my thing. <laughs> it's like the credit cookie sort of shit. The big twist at the end yeah. trend, kind of. I feel like immediately negates whatever emotionally happened in the movie you watched. It stops you from thinking about what just was resolved, and it starts making you think instead about what's going to happen next. Which is how a show like Lost works, right? Like even this yeah. episode, which is such a good self-contained episode ends with the Giacchino strings hitting you know a high pitch and Faraday opening the book and that feeling of like (laughs) oh fuck what does that mean you know that's the stuff where I watch it and I'm like oh right this show this is what it felt like to watch on a week-to-week basis (laughs) and I I think movies you know I mean we're on the same page about all this stuff but I'll I'll say like as sort of one final thing talking about what you lose by making tv in a bubble in that way and i certainly look at like so much of mandalorian's cultural power i think comes from the one episode at a time drop and it's not a hyper serialized show but the cone of silence they've created off of it even though it's largely bottle episodes it is exciting that going into a week you have no idea what the episode's going to be you know that we're all engaging with it and going like oh wow this person's in this episode and this episode's about this conflict and it takes place in this environment um that sense of discovery is really fun um and in a way i will (laughs) sorry go ahead no go ahead no no just in a way if you're gonna do streaming television and uh uh produce things in a bubble like that it's almost better to make the episodes more standalone you know um yeah that's true yeah what were you gonna say? Sorry. I will, well, I will just both agree with you and say, as someone who has to like cover Mandalorian this season, uh, I I I applaud their cone of silence. I only wish they would give us screeners like a couple hours oh, in advance sure. of midnight sure. on a Thursday. Yeah. No, I say this as Those someone who jerks. <laughs> does not have to cover Mandalorian and would never agree to cover Mandalorian in any public sphere. Uh, but I see like Amazon doing that with the boys now, and I I get truly yeah. jealous of like we always felt on the tick like. Our show would yeah. probably be better absorbed that way. And we were very much at the mercy of Amazon trying out different release strategies. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it was Which... always like frustrating to see like, wow, it really changes how someone emotionally processes a show if you release one season and two halves, you know, and how much time yeah. there is between two halves versus releasing the whole season all at once versus when we would screen just one episode or two episodes for people at like conventions or whatever. It, it all definitely changed the way people perceive the show. So you brought up Fincher earlier and I wanted I wanted to um, actually have you had a chance to see uh, Mank yet? I have not. I, I wish I'm very uh- jealous. Uh, Sims keeps on lording it over me. Okay. Um, sorry, I did not mean to bring up. Sword no, 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 um, no, no, no. But something that Mank does, and I won't, you know, I won't get into like, I won't get into super specifics or whatever. But Mank is is a is a film that jumps back and forth in time, and has, I would say, some challenges mm-hmm. landing the differences in times, despite the fact that like chirons are typed on the screen while you're watching to give you the date and time of when you're flashing back to. But mm-hmm. it is, I think, fundamentally for all of makes positives, something of a failure uh, that it doesn't, I I don't think it lands the jumping in time Interesting. Uh, the way that it necessarily needed to. And and if you watch it, disagree with me, please uh, DM me on Twitter to let me I'll know. I'll update. But yeah. Um, <laughs> but something I, I just want to ask you a technical question, which is I just think that it would be so easy 
for this plot to get so confusing. Yeah. Um, but here's a few things they weaponized. First of all, of course, wigs. Lost loves to weaponize a wig, right? Like, yeah. Uh, you and know, good so wig got... in this one. Like, I, I still yeah. can never quite figure out the physics of how they fit the Desmond mane under that short <laughs> wig. It really looks good. <laughs> it's good. It's a good one, uh, as opposed to like some of the uh, the all time bad Jack ones. Um, yes. But. Um, so, you know, wig work and obviously like Lost is proficient in flashback stuff at this point. You usually know it by like a whooshing sound. But I just can't get over how smooth the edits are on like Desmond falling over in one timeline and completing the oh, fall in the next. So good. Yeah. Editing is like the original special effect in, in filmed storytelling. And I I feel like people often forget how powerful it is, how much you can do with that alone, um, especially with sort of defining a really clear language in that way. Once again, it's like the, you know, Last Jedi, it's like that's those force conversations or the, the force Skype works the best for me. And it's truly just a trick of editing two people in two mm-hmm. locations together and make it seem like they're having a consistent conversation and uh uh sherlock jr the buster keaton movie which i always think about has this like amazing set piece that i still think is probably on on a cinematic level is the most impressive piece of filmed comedy i've ever seen where he like crawls into a movie screen and the joke is that he's now in a movie and he's trying to complete actions, and every time he gets close to completing an action, there's an edit, and he's still in the exact same part of the frame, but now where previously <laughs> he was on a bench, he's now on the edge of a cliff, you know? It's just they keep on doing that trick over and over again, and it still just uh-huh. kind of stuns you. Like, you're like, this is more yeah. impressive than any CGI I've ever seen. Uh, and I think it is because you're using it purely for kind of emotional impact in that way. And every time you hear the sound growing or a music cue that you feel like is tipping you off that he's about to get sucked back and then that hard cut happens to him in the other timeline, it it hits you like it sucks, you know, it ratchets tension and it makes you feel his pain. And it it is just sort of a lesson in um, the power of, I would say using your basic tools very wisely you know rather than using some sort of wild establishing some new visual template for what it looks like you know and having some visual effect you know having the screen get blurry or shake or having any digital right whatchamacallit or do color ver- color versus black and white or you right. know some various right. thing that you could do yeah yeah right and the right. fact that like he's taking a physical beating yes. in like a lot of these transitions i think is like a big part of the power as well like he's falling over and you're like oh my god he's gonna injure himself he's gonna fall down those stairs he's gonna like hit his head on that sink like what is gonna happen to desmond so um i think that's a part of his power the other thing that i want to make sure i talk yeah yeah go ahead i was just gonna say it's also weaponizing the way we've learned how to watch this show up until this point in time because to a degree whenever you have that and then it cuts to the the flashback Mm -hmm. or cuts forward back to the present um it was a little bit of a tension release on whatever you were watching in that timeline. It resets you to the conflict of the other timeline. And this is the Mm, one episode where we're still getting those cuts, but the character is feeling those cuts physically. 
and every yeah. cut just ma- ratchets the tension. You know, the right. two timelines are in sync with each other and they only build, which is why that final release of the phone call feels so huge because the episode's just been stacking up one tower the entire time. Yeah. I, I think the other secret weapon in this episode that I want to make sure I talk uh, to you about uh, before we go is um, Jeremy Davies' performance as Dan Faraday. And not yeah. just like Dan Faraday in general, but two Dan Faradays, right? We get like Daniel Faraday, who's like like Desmond, sort of like unraveling at the seams on the island um, because he's having like memory issues and all this sort of stuff that comes with Dan's like mysterious storyline. Um, and then we've got like Oxford Dan, uh, he of the flowing mane and like, you know, it's just like a little bit more arrogant and uh, a little uh, less scrambled and all this sort of stuff like that. And I mm-hmm. just, and, and like he's tasked in both timelines of not just doing any kind of exposition, but like a really <laughs> like sci-fi mumbo jumbo, um, you can type it, but you can't say it kind of exposition. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, so 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 Dan and Jeremy Davies as Dan is deployed that in that way. And then you also like a really masterful use of Jack, Jack, who can be a really frustrating character sometimes, but like Jack consistently is someone who demands answers. And so, you know, of course, Jack is going to be interrogating Dan. And as Dan gives him answers, he's giving us answers. And that helps us sort of grok the whole concept of what's going on and so i was just wondering if you had thoughts on i thought you might have some thoughts oh, yeah. on, on good old jeremy davies yeah and all of i that. mean unsurprisingly uh i love jeremy davies as an actor dude's yes. right in my wheelhouse uh yeah and desmond's my favorite character on the show but but davies is my favorite performance on the entire series and i think it's because of it, it, there's there's a collection of things that an actor can do that will oppress me above all else and one of them is make exposition interesting in that kind of way <laughs> like watching mm-hmm. back to the future i had that breakthrough of like that's that's the power of christopher lloyd is he's the best right. exposition actor of all time in those movies it's three straight movies of him explaining rules and making <laughs> them funny when what he's saying often isn't doesn't have any jokes embedded in it sometimes it does Mm -hmm. other times he's literally just describing timelines and he's making (laughs) acting choices that don't distract from the information you're still processing everything but he's keeping you engaged because i i feel like sometimes if you get into too much of a mumbo jumbo dump as audience members our brains can just turn off you know Completely. you sort of yeah. check out until the next scene where people are having a normal conversation and davies is one of those guys half of that's what like half of Westworld is. Yeah. Is like mumbo jumbo that I'm like too much brain yeah. fried. Got to turn it off. Right. Or, and that's where okay, I sorry, sort of that, started to like yeah. fall off on Westworld is when that balance yeah. gets thrown off. Um, but Davies is one of those guys who like does a lot. He's got a lot of mannerisms. He's got a lot mm-hmm. of ticks. There's a lot of business. But there, there's something at its core that's very grounded about him. There's something still kind of understated about him. Um, It feels like he is, he does a very good job of kind of physicalizing thought. Like, no one really behaves like this. You know, anyone who's this scatterbrained is less charismatic and charming. (laughs) You know, they're just kind of confusing. Um, Yep. But but he's good at playing that sort of tension of, of someone who is really hard to pin down, whose mind is racing through all of his weird physicality and his energy shifts. And um, 
there's so much of that in this episode, especially because on the island, everyone's trying to suss out whether or not they can trust him. And Desmond is doing the opposite, is trying to convince him to trust him, you know? Um, right. Yeah. And he gets to play both dynamics really, really well and drop a lot of exposition. And and he's one of those guys for me. I just, I, I love him. I always, always find him fascinating he's in that michael keaton club for me of like guys who do so much they are not subtle actors but it never Mm -hmm. feels like they're doing too much and it never feels like they're doing something just for the sake of eccentricity it always feels rooted in an understanding of character and also in an understanding of dramatically what the piece needs from them at that moment but they do a ton and they take big swings um, are you a Justified guy? You watch Justified? I've, I've never watched it. And for such a big Davies fan and for someone who's been kind of bummed out that, uh, you know, I don't see him that much post loss. It, it's kind of confounding yeah. that I've never watched it. I mean, I'm just going to recommend you make it like one of your next uh, pandemic quarantine watches. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, everyone's high on all the font right now because of the Mandalorian. Yeah. Davies, Davies and character actress Margot Martindale just run the board on season two. Season two of Justified is one of the best things you'll ever watch. Walton Goggins, extraordinary. Justified, I cannot say enough. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I don't, I don't usually get like forceful with my recommendations, but yeah. I'm just gonna say you should, you should do it. Not I, that I, you aren't watching a million other things and are super busy. Well, no, I, w- I was gonna say. I mean, outside of, uh, you know, homework for podcasts. Uh, I, I pretty much, I think without exception, have only watched uh, sitcoms and comedy movies uh, in lockdown. Like, I just it's feel like my brain has <laughs> not been able to handle anything It's really else. understandable. But, yeah, like, yeah. for the first time this last week uh, uh, post-election, I'm like, oh, I, I, wonder I, why. I, could, yeah, I yeah. could watch some heavier shit. <laughs> I could watch some stuff with some tension in it again, you know? So, like, yeah. I, I, you're catching me at the right moment where I really could pull the trigger on Justified. Love to pick my moment. Um, all right. Is there anything else about The Constant or Lost in General that, that you want to talk about, Griffin Newman? I, I think the other thing that this episode gets at for me that, that always hits me really hard in drama and storytelling is uh, uh, to go back to Back to the Future uh, but weirdly not connected to the time travel thing. It, it's the um, person continues to work at something or hold on to something for years, for an epic amount of time, without any proof that they are ever going to be rewarded for it. You know? Mm. It, it always gets to me and there's like good the, old rory yeah, yeah right there's the low level version of it which is just like uh, a movie about someone who has a dream and finally gets to do the thing they've always dreamed about doing you know there's the billy elliott effect of like he he <laughs> boy he dances well and his dad finally gets it you know he has to work through those six months of his dad calling him a poof but then you know he he gets he gets his just desserts and you see him at the ballet in the future but then when you extend it to like that moment of um, in Back to the Future when the the car has successfully gone to the 80s and Doc Brown is left standing in the street with the flames behind him and he starts dancing in the middle of the street. I always get choked up seeing that because it's mm. not just the success of that moment. It's like we have met Doc Brown in the 80s and he's a bizarre old man who feels pretty rejected by all of society. 
and now your you're like a teenager yeah, yeah, right yeah. you're like this 1950s doc brown is going to live the next 30 years of his life knowing that he's not pursuing these things in vain and i find that yeah. very emotionally overwhelming that it's like marty has given doc this gift of you know and it's one of the reasons where i think doc then like messes with the timeline and puts on the bulletproof vest and everything is like to a degree he lives the next 30 years knowing he has something to live for that there's this relationship he cares about that he's gonna get to meet this kid someday but that also like 30 years of people telling him that he's a quack and a lunatic and he's never gonna accomplish anything he can just put that all in the rear view now doesn't matter like like water off a duck's back you know and that same kind of thing that the poignancy of uh i mean desmond certainly but but penny uh waiting for eight years you know despite her anger in that moment despite the fact that she literally pushes him out and slams the door on him something in her makes her believe you know it's whatever made her care about this guy in the first place she can't she doesn't know how to quit him and she spends eight (laughs) years you know living some sort of weird monk-like existence applying her millions of dollars of inherited wealth uh to an expedition because she just cannot give up on this guy and the idea that i mean it's him walking away from her doorstep as the phone's ringing and you truly sit there going like this is a show that has been known to kill people off with very little emotion you know they'll they'll drop the hammer in that way Desmond could fail. He could just be a a lesson for other characters going forward. You truly feel the tension of it. And her picking up the phone is not only a victory for him. It somehow also becomes a victory for her immediately that she is rewarded. That her being alone on Christmas Eve is rewarded by he wasn't just a blathering maniac. There was a reason I needed to be here. I needed to hold on to this number and I needed to pick up the phone. And that that yeah. just gets me so so goddamn hard. No, you're right. The the like the the larger stakes of of a timeline story um the opportunity there uh for to to put the weight of years on something uh, is is extraordinarily powerful when used correctly. And that moment when, um, yeah, I was thinking about that earlier about how like the this episode. Uh, no, it doesn't. I don't think this episode has a previously on. But you're you're thinking about Charlie a lot in this episode. She mentions yeah. Charlie. Like you're thinking about Charlie a lot in this episode, and they killed Charlie. So yeah, yeah. they could kill Desmond. And, and and I was really surprised. We watched this with some of our listeners on Saturday, and some of them are watching the show for the first time. And I'm always worried about people watching these like big TV moments so far out of the moment, mm-hmm. you know, and whether or not it will land with them and whether or not they will have been spoiled and whether or not the like expectation of like the constant is, is the big lost episode will ruin the experience for them and stuff like that. But yeah. I was really surprised to find a bunch of them were like, Oh my God, I hope Dozen's going to be okay. And I'm like, what a beautiful world to live in yeah. that you're not sure if Dozen's going to survive the end of the constant or not. That's great. I love yeah, that. So, it rules. And- um, yeah, yeah. They've they built up the type of show that could actually deliver that hammer blow. It doesn't feel yeah. like an empty threat when he's walking Absolutely. away and the phone Absolutely. is is not being answered. Yeah, I just and then I remember that his face. Ugh! I mean, okay, by okay. by this season, I was watching it. I had dropped out of college, but my best friend was going to NYU, and I would watch it in a dorm room with a bunch of college students while I was spending my days doing internships with older people so it's also like (laughs) one of my only 
social activities that still felt age appropriate in a kind of way, you know, uh, where I was like hanging out with college people in the college environment. And I just I, I, I will never forget the sort of like the the pin drop silent uh but but thick with tension feeling in that room as he walked away you know like we we were truly all just like white knuckling it going like whatever happens at this point we're all about to start ugly crying in front of each other right either outcome is going to destroy us and it's pretty thrilling when a show can build up in a way to that sort of impact especially from such an unexpected corner of its universe I love that. Thank you so much for talking to me about this beautiful episode about our favorite Scotsman so who doesn't know how to button his shirt the best. and um, everything else. Uh, Griffin Newman, if folks want to hear more from you or perhaps uh, get updated on what's going on with the with the cast of The Tick, uh, yeah. where can they find you? Uh, I, I blank check podcast available wherever podcasts are found uh, with David Sims from the Atlantic. We go over uh, filmographies of directors who achieved a quote unquote blank check status at some point. Uh, so we're still on Zemeckis. Uh, it's a very long filmography, but you can uh, tune in for that and check out the past miniseries we've done. James Cameron, Christopher Nolan, Catherine Bigelow, M. Night Shyamalan, uh, Ang Lee, Nancy Myers, a whole weird array of people. Um, <laughs> And uh, uh, The Tick, uh, we are uh, this very weekend from the time this episode is coming out, November 15th, on HouseSeats.Live, we are doing a reunion. Uh, the night, I believe it's 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, uh, on Sunday, November 15th, where all three casts of all three versions of The Tick the animated ah! children's show, the Patrick Warburton sitcom, and the Amazon version that I was on. Uh, all three are reuniting on one night, and we're going to read, uh, I believe, at least three full scripts that were never produced, one from each series, along with perhaps some other scraps and odds and ends of things that you've never seen before. So they're sort of alternate timelines, uh, creative uh, uh, directions the show could have gone into. Uh, I know certainly with our version, uh, things that they literally would just not give us the budget to do. Um, but I think it's going to be uh, really fun. I'm excited to see my friends again and also uh, my extended family. The other Tick cast members feel like weird distant cousins for me uh, who I get to meet sometimes at conventions uh, and reunions and things like that. Um, but it'll be live on November 15th. And then I believe uh, tickets are $10. If you're not able to watch live on that night, it will be uh, archived on that site to watch later. Um, are there going to be any uh, lost actors in this reunion since there are some lost actors who are on the tick? I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I'll say this. Okay. I hope, I hope so, be. but I don't know Could for a fact. Be. I should also mention uh, okay. all the tickets are to raise money for local food banks. So we're going to divide uh, the funds raised across a bunch of different food banks uh, from all of our hometowns. Whether or not any lost actor appears, obviously we should all do ourselves a solid and support this uh, yes. support this event and uh, just bathe in the joy that is three different iterations of the tick yes. uh, and support our pal Griffin. Um, I just uh, thought there might be a little icing on the cake, so so let's just just dangle this extra yeah. carrot, which is that there could I'll, I'll say be this I, I one or so. two lost actors yeah uh, on this call so absolutely yeah. 
Excellent. Well, thank you. I will uh, be bothering you again next time Desmond uh, takes center stage. Uh, and until then, stay safe, stay, stay sound. Griffin Newman. All right, now is the time on the podcast where we'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers at the $10 level or above. We will start with some newcomers here. We've got Patrick Grayton, Cindy M., Eric Carey, uh, Chris Bisgard, who I think is a returning small counselor. Welcome back, Chris. Priscilla, Walton, Jenna, Paul, Amy, Jackie Palowski, David Matheson, Trevor Ede, Sam D'Angelo, Vera Johansson, Maureen Moore, Rob Perry Hall, Michael R. Cleland. Oh, I don't know if you're any relation to Dan, but hello, Michael. Um, Cecily, Stephanie, Matthew, Kaylee Hicks, and David Adams. Thank you guys so much. And I would like to thank David Moran, AJ Cabbage, Del Martinez, Chelsea Doyle, Mark Lawson, Michelle Cahill, Ben Grieving, Christopher. Vanjonic, Gabriel Colorado, Dane Mayhair, Kate Thrams, Jeff Ruberg, Laura Atu, Benjamin Jacoby, Reginator Cakes, DJ Empirical, Jackie Meme Lord, Jessica Lair, Manu Mishra, and Megan McLeod. Thank you very much. And I would like to thank the following fine humans David Koplos. Daniel Aaron Siegel Greenberg, Lily Lim, Derek Dock, Vince Lewis, Russell Griffin, Philip Durrett, Tyler Iman, Elizabeth Chandler, Karen Eint, Einter, yeah, there we go, Gregory Gergarian, Brandon Lee Tenney, Kelly Stollard, Melanie Rodriguez, Sarah Carmichael, Spencer Howard, Huang Lee, Michael Sample, Jenna Man. Del Mandel, yeah, okay, and Rosa Peretta. Thank you all for being members of the Small Council. And now we're back for the storm. I have no way of making John Locke an antagonist in this episode. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was actually. Antagonist of stuff previously, but just isn't here. It's not involved in this one. I was reading the one of the fun facts on the old Lostpedia, which is an excellent website, was that this is and, and this is this is true. If you think about it, um, one of the episodes that in, includes the fewest season one main characters. It's just Saeed and Jack. Everybody else has been added since beyond season one. Mm. Oh yeah, because on the beach it's just it's Juliet, mm-hmm. Jack, Charlotte, and Dan. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, but I mean, let's just, we can say it because it's a storm. Michael's there creeping around. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's just around, the, somewhere around the boat. Not helping too much, but just He's enough. He's opening the door, like unlocking and opening the door in the time that um, they're just paying attention to Minkowski. That one Stealth. was, it's extremely Stealth. sneaky on Michael's part. Yeah. He's 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 the he's the goat of sneaking around the boat. <laughs> uh, yeah, Michael Michael destroying the comms. I mean, like, and by that I don't mean C A L M S. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Michael. Like, I mean, he's being tortured. I'm sorry, it's a bad time for Michael, but I am appreciative of all the stuff that he's doing on the boat to try to, uh, you know, make mischief. He's basically like the peeves of the boat, mm-hmm. and I'm into yeah. it. <laughs> 
Well, he wasted no time getting back to the island, as we've discussed in the storm before, and we will discuss again as we get to Michael or me, Kevin Johnson. Michael's timeline makes no sense, uh, but probably maybe one of the last people to see Friendly alive off the island. Um, uh, uh, I like this fact that somebody has uh, thrown on from the audio commentary. Oh yeah, DVD. I got this one. Go for it. Uh, well, this is interesting because you know there's there's a very it's a several good twists. I, I mean, I guess the Penny thing isn't much of a twist. It's just sort of a payoff. But the Daniel twist at the end. Um, but according to the audio commentary that was on the season four DVD, the final scene was also going to involve Charlotte approaching Daniel with the bag containing the gas masks, which sets up what happens in the episode that we're about to watch the other woman. Um, but you know, they decided to sort of leave it at Daniel's note about Desmond being the, the, uh, his constant so that we wouldn't have like, I guess a double cliffhanger there at the end. I don't know. It's, it's yeah. a moment of restraint. For Lost, Which is good, you know? because then we don't have to deal with the fucking gas plot while thinking about the constant. Right, because right. gas plot kind of sucks, so we can just like keep right. that contained. The best decision they ever made about the gas plot episode. is that it only exists in the next episode. <laughs> Da, what is it? What is this? What is the score doing when it leaves the episode? It goes like what? Donna, Donna, boom! That's like a Jacino <laughs> out uh, music cue. Um, I did want to say another thing about Michael that's pretty funny is I was reading through old recaps of the episode and old comment sections of the episode. By the way, old comment sections of Lost recaps are a real landmine because like anyone, people. We'll take any excuse to talk about how much they think Kate sucks. <laughs> I'm like, she's not even in this episode, man. Leave Kate mm. out of it. <laughs> um, but the um, but everyone is everyone that I saw in like on the AV Club and like Alan Seppenwall's recaps and stuff like that were like, I mean, there's zero zero percent chance the man on the freighter is not Michael. Like they had all figured it out because Michael's name is in the credit every week. Oh like, yeah, they're like it's definitely michael um so um our our commies that are doing like the watch along with us in the patreon slack don't seem to have figured that out or if they do they're keeping it quiet but um mm-hmm. i think which, that there have been a few folks who have noticed yeah that harold perino's name is there but correct <clears throat> i don't know if it's quite clicked yet yeah we keep like yeah. trying to casually brush it off we're like oh contract mm-hmm. yeah i mean if you <laughs> if you're back it. in in 2008 when these things were airing um, you had a week to just sit there and think about every little thing. I mean, you, have a, you have a week with our podcast too. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think, I well, think, they, yeah, they, they dressed it also on the official podcast and tried to like shrug it off as being like a contractual thing, but it was definitely, uh, something they didn't want to do. Uh, but you know, television contracts, you, you wild people, you were definitely a long way <laughs> out from game of Thrones shooting Jon Snow kneeling to Cersei just because fuck the fandom. So I, I don't feel too bad about this. <laughs> Remember that? Okay. Um, can I read a listener email we got? Mm-hmm. Let's. This is from John, who I know quite well from Twitter, but he this is the first time that John has emailed in to the podcast. So John writes, hello, Storm Gang, longtime fan, first time emailer. I have a personal theory for why Jack is so put off by Aaron, and it's based on Jack's arc in There's No Place Like Home and on the show overall. 
The information that Aaron is Jack's nephew arrives just as Jack is finally burying his father and juxtaposed with his conflict with Locke over fate, bringing them to the island and them not being supposed to leave. By the end of the finale, Jack will be set on his path to bring them all back to the island and we learn it's Locke and the coffin. In this context, my theory is that Claire's mother dropping this wild coincidence bombshell can't help but set off Jack's fate alarm, which can't help but remind him of Locke, leaving Claire behind. And them leaving in the first place. Jack's opposition to fate is core to his entire character in the first two thirds of the series. So beginning to seriously question whether fate exists and whether what he did truly didn't fix anything, but rather made it worse, strikes me as the kind of thing that Jack would try to avoid. That he ultimately does reconcile with this, only to then begin to be haunted by his father, feels like the kind of escalation that could totally unravel Jack's life and lead to bearded Jack and the Jack of the rest of the series. Thanks all. I love listening and all three of your takes and perspectives. Your podcast has been with me as I've trained from being a beginner runner to running solid 3Ks. So thanks for the motivation. Take care. Stay safe, John. So thanks, John, for that, for listening, for running, for not falling down, I suppose. Oh, we forgot to do we forget to do the falling down award to Desmond over and over again. <laughs> oh, Desmond did deserve multiple right. falling down awards. Desmond, it's... several times. Fell down. <laughs> but, um, down. but yeah, so so Aaron, like Aaron as a reminder, like the fact that Claire is his sister is a is a what a crazy random happenstance. And and if that messages with Jack's man of science brain uh, in a way that he wants to avoid, I think that does make a lot of sense. I yeah, like the problem for Jack, especially off the island, is that fate keeps showing up, right, to like punch him <laughs> in the face. Yeah. <laughs> and well, that's what I, what I really like about John's email is because it is like he finally puts his father to rest, and it's like that's what got him on the island, and so he could pivot out of it. But the second he does, he learns that nope, you're constantly going to be reminded of the island because little baby Aaron. Also, you left your half sister on the island. <laughs> Also that, <laughs> and maybe maybe they're still alive. We have to figure out what uh, Lieutenant Daniels wants from them. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, no, sorry. Th- this is the storm. Yeah, yeah. She's there. She's she has a nice little squirrel baby. She doesn't even notice anything's wrong, really. Uh, you know, Jack's having a harder time with it occasionally. Uh, I'm not gonna say that pampered Doctor Jack is having a harder time than living rough in the jungle, Claire. Um, <laughs> and feral Claire. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> No, it's a fine. No. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> uh, all right, um, we are, you know, to the point of the the last season where we're going to keep encroaching more and more on time, which I think is really the thing that I associate with Faraday. But it's really this episode because they have you know our payload thing and whatnot, and then obviously we're working the season five. So Dave's excited. Uh, because I have something to track that isn't uh, just Locke being an antagonist, which I still <laughs> stick by. But in terms of things that I like tracking throughout an entire series, uh, the timey-wimey things, I, I look forward to debating how this did or did not work out. Well, uh, good. let me contradict one thing I said about um, not caring about the rules. My memory of the rules, like, the you know, Lost takes a very firm whatever happened happened stance, right? Uh, yes. in in the later seasons except for Desmond that Desmond is this like exception a man outside of time that there's you know, the unique properties of his you know timeline skipping brain make him immune to some of the rules of time travel and we find this in a later season when like Dan Dan Faraday goes and finds Desmond in a hatch to tell him something um 
you know, because he knows that Desmond is an exception. Um, and so I do think by those rules, Desmond did actually affect some change in this episode, but he's the only one allowed to do it. Does that make sense? So that, yeah, that actually makes me feel better about stuff I was trying to talk around with uh, the notebook at the end. Because I think it does make sense in what I outlined, which is that you're Dan, you're a person who knows about time travel. You're going to make a note of the only time you met somebody who successfully traveled through time, supposedly. But I do think that if we're being honest with ourselves in the world of Lost, Desmond probably put that thing in his notebook. Uh, the Eloise stuff, who knows? Well, that's, a, that's for another season as to how much Dan's notebook holds the answers to things that he has or has not been paying attention to. Oh, Eloise. Yes. Eloise Hawking. We call her in the storm. <laughs> Mrs. Hawking in the calm. <laughs> I did it. Uh, all right, guys. Uh, and anything else we want to wrap up on the constant here? It's a really good episode. It's yes. a, it's the a tied for the highest rated on IMDb, which is tough because, you know, wait, IMDb wait, wait, is sort of a crapshoot. Wait, uh, Dave, we should guess the other one. It's probably the pilot. But do we have any... What? Oh, wait, 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 wait. The highest rated what? What? Lost like, episode? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 oh. I thought for some reason it might have been the highest rated episode of like a single episode of television. I was like Breaking Bad finale, but no. <laughs> no, uh, no, no. It would okay. be, it would be, uh, what's it? What is it? Battle of the Bastards. Battle of the Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll tell you this. It's a 9.7 out of 10 on IMDb, which is incredibly um, high. Is still, yeah, my, my guess is still the pilot. What do you think, Dave? You said the pilot? Walkabout. It is the tied with Through the Looking Glass. Oh, jolly! Another episode hey. we just watched. <laughs> wow, yeah. that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, not Penny's. I mean, boat. I guess I should have guessed with you know the hand meme that that was super popular mm-hmm. amongst all people. But I thought maybe we were in a little lost bubble, a little time egg. I was really hoping that it was going to be Nikki and Paula's episode. <laughs> Expo- Expose, Expose, Stranger to Strangeland. <laughs> IMDb has come around and expose is the best episode. Of <laughs> um, yeah, the constant. I mean, like, what an incredible episode. I mean, we didn't. I don't know. I feel. I feel like we we're a little. We we're a little uh, Desmond hopping through time in this in the calm section of this uh, podcast. But like, this is just an incredible episode of television. I literally cry every time. I cry every time I watch even just this scene on YouTube. It's mm-hmm. just yeah. I feel incredible. like there were folks that in our live watch were telling us that they. Just every once in a while, just watch this scene. I do the, that. I mean, wow. No, you I mean, like, every once in a while makes it sound like often. But I would say, like, <laughs> at least once a year, I okay. watch this scene on YouTube. Yes. Okay. I've I've recommended this as an episode to show somebody who is maybe thinking about picking up Lost, uh, kind of because of what Neil pointed out, that, like, it kind of doesn't have a lot of season one characters. Mm-hmm. So it has, like, face spoilers, but otherwise, you're going to entirely enjoy the first season of Lost as the first season of Lost, even if the constant is the bait that pulls you in. So I think this is also one of those, you know, special episodes of a pretty serialized show that I could still say could be your first as long as you plan to go back because uh, you have to go back, but you'll get that joke later. Uh, yeah, so I, I I dig the constant just as a strong episode of television and then especially as what we've been learning about Lost. Uh, it's amazing that they got this thing out 
and then had to go on strike and then finished up their season in a rush because there's so much care that I think went into writing the constant and executing the constant. It's fantastic. You think about the way that constant, the constant informs, like, I can't think of a comparable, um, uh, leftovers episode, but the way that it informs, uh, the episode of Watchmen, it's called, it was called reverie. No, nostalgia. I don't remember what it was Nostalgia. Uh, the nostalgia episode is what I call it, but like, you know, cause that was the name of the drug. But anyway, this idea of like <clears throat> Regina King's character sort of like, falling in and out of time uh in that episode and all the cuts obviously Stephen williams brilliantly directed that episode storyboarded it to uh its teeth and um i you know i can't help but see the constant in that episode just the beautiful like almost balletic execution of a, of a high concept so good mm-hmm. so good well i think a lot of watchmen I'm, no i'm gonna say this like uh, the Watchmen's plot, not its emotions and themes, which I think were much stronger. I think Watchmen's plot hinges on the magic trick that they found in the constant, right? Plot, um, sh- maybe because it's about Manhattan, and Manhattan lives outside of time. So everything, when you as you get closer to Manhattan, which is what season one of Watchmen sort of is. They take more... Dr. Manhattan, yeah. Well, I think... And I think that Damon has cited the Dr. Manhattan story in Watchmen as an inspiration for The Constant. So it's sort of yeah. circular. He was inspired mm-hmm. by... You could say that Dr. Manhattan is the ultimate button alert system. Because he's <laughs> no shirt, no pants, nothing. No surface. Dr. He's, Manhattan. He's the full Desmond. <laughs> Dr. Manhattan is Damon Lindelof's constant. <laughs> no, I just thought, I thought it was, and, and what's interesting, like, I, I feel more comfortable talking about this after the interview with Griff, but, like, what I just think is so interesting about Desmond is that he doesn't have his own bad dad. He's just trapped in a really toxic feedback loop with his girlfriend's bad dad. And and so, like, he, like John Locke, is seeking approval <laughs> from a really toxic human being. And that's, like, a big regret. And, and you know, he chose his pursuit of Charles Widmore over the reality of Penny. And that's, like, that's a big thing of what he's, like, kind of trying to undo in this episode, which I think is... Um, it's really strong. It's really, really strong. Because mm-hmm. we all have, also, like, I mean, uh, oh, you know, ahead. Dave has, like, the loveliest girlfriend on the planet. I love Java, but, like, I think you're not a human in this world if you don't have any romantic regrets in your life. You know what I mean? And, like, even if you're, like, perfectly happy with your partner, you still have regrets, things you've done, things uh, you wish you could have done differently. And this, this that's a big thing at the core of this episode, which makes it so relatable beyond the, like, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey island stuff, you know? So what we've learned is after you break up with somebody, that first night that you're like drunk and feeling a little regressed, ask for their phone number, promise to not call it for eight years. In eight <laughs> years, if you're still feeling that way, loop back around and give them the constant, baby. See what happens. Give them the right? old constant. <laughs> give them the constant. You answered, Penny. Penny, you answered. Just like hang up the phone. Boom. You just got constant. You got constant <laughs> But I mean, yeah, this this episode does require, like, in order for you to go along with it emotionally, it requires a leap of, a, like, a romantic 
uh, leap of faith. You know what I mean? Because like the cynical part of you, and certainly I have this reaction sometimes where I'm like, I'm not waiting eight years for a phone call. Fuck you, mm-hmm. dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then it's just so beautiful when she answers, you know? So, and I think this episode is one of the reasons why um, it's one of the many narratives I've ingested from Hollywood that like makes me think that like the long wait is romantic is like some you know like oh the hard one love the long wait stuff like that and i've i've sort of like gotten over that <laughs> like as i've gotten older <laughs> but when i was young i was like there's nothing more romantic than pining after someone for a long time and then all you know finally getting together with them and then like as you mature you're like no maybe if it's not working out for a couple of years it's just like not working out <laughs> the, <laughs> end, the end full stop you know what i mean <laughs> So. Yeah, well, I mean, that's basically what, like, medieval chivalry is based on, is pining that's never going to be anything. Yeah. Which, you know, is a thing, but also, look what it gives you. Toxic masculinity. Jorah Mormont uh, gives you grace, Jorah <laughs> Jorah, you should have just made a play, but oh, nope, grayscale. Or you <laughs> almost bad. die from a brain hemorrhage because your consciousness is skipping through time too rapidly. Yeah, that, that too. Just feels like it's like one of those, you know, it, not everything has to be an adventure. <laughs> uh, speaking of not everything having to be an adventure, uh, Neil, where are we gassing up next week? Oh, next week we are, yes, it's the gas episode. It's the other woman. Um, I've always just remembered this as the the uh, Juliet and um, Goodwin episode. <laughs> it's the Harper episode. Oh, that's right. It's the Harper episode. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to get some more Juliet backstory, and then uh, Dan and Charlotte are going to be weird. Dan's going to oh. go from the like fun kind of withholding, where he's just like nervous that everyone's going to be freaked out and not understand what he's talking about, to the annoying kind of withholding. Ditto Charlotte. Charlotte's going to go from mm-hmm. like justifiably pissed off because John Locke like drew a gun on her or Ben tried to ben shoot shot her. her. Yeah. <laughs> to like just really annoying in this yeah. in this next week's episode. Yeah, Too and then bad. weirdly enough, they're mostly fine after that. One of them is. Yeah. My <laughs> Anyway, until the other woman, where can people find more of your work online? For those people still listening, probably know where to find us, but in case, here we go. Joanna Robinson. Find me on VanityFair.com. I'm doing a podcast called Still Watching about the HBO series The Undoing right now. So you can listen to that on the Still Watching feed. Or you can listen to me on Little Gold Men. Uh, This week we talked about a couple uh, new movies that are out uh, that you might... And by out, I mean available for you at home in the safety of your home. Uh, or on Twitter, I Joe wrote this if I didn't say that already. The end. And Neil Miller. Uh, well, you can always get me over at uh, filmschoolrejects.com or on Twitter at rejects or at One Perfect Shot, where I promise we are done for the most part subtweeting the election. And we're just back to posting about random movies at random times. It's great. Uh, and, uh, oh, speaking of Twitter, don't forget to follow our show at storm podcast, where you can vote on which verse, which different combination of, uh, Desmond and Penny should be making out this week. It's answer is all of them. <laughs> and I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA seven E, but still kind of a weird place to be. And we're going to have some Mandalorian that has people I don't like on it. So maybe the Twitter is not the best place. 
I'm going to stop uh, slipping into Bill Cosby to tell you about fighting in the war room. Is that what that was? I <laughs> I, it was getting there fast. I had to pull it on the brakes before it went all the way into there. It like it, it wanted to Tom Waits and then got the little bump, the boop, and, and then it was all bad. Okay, guys, uh, I'm also here telling you not to fall down uh, and uh, leaving the impressions to Joanna from here on out. See you guys next week.